Hello there, and welcome to episode four of Battle of the Pilots. I am Graham Raddings, and I am joined by my good friend and energetic electron gun impresario, Adrian Mills. Mm-hmm. In this podcast, we reach into the extensive back catalogue of TV shows from over the last 50 years and pluck out a couple of pilot episodes for a head-to-head battle. To ensure we can crown a champion, we will take an Argus-eyed, whimsical and querulous look at both chosen TV show pilot episodes discussing the relative merits or demerits and scoring them out of 10 for key themes and or categories such as story, characters, costumes, music, visuals, an influence to eventually settle on an overall score. In the end, one pilot show will emerge as the all-knowing and all-powerful Wizard of Oz, while the other one is dressed in leather <laughs> underpants, banging a spoon in Zardoz. <laughs> no one wants that. Nobody. Nobody. Wants that. Nobody. <laughs> Not even Sean Connery wanted that. No. Um, for this fourth episode, we have chosen two short-lived 80s sci-fi action shows that never really lit up our screens or took off. Yes, that's right. This week, the shape-shifting shenanigans of Manimal goes head-to-head with the techno-toned AI cop of Automan. Let battle commence. That battle commenced indeed. They were short-lived, weren't they? Very short-lived. They were short-lived. And so, as a general running order for these type of things, what we'd like to do at this beginning bit is for Adrian the cathode ray evangelist here, um, to just give us the, the lowdown, the rundown, the show backgrounds, <laughs> and just give us the lowdown. And what, what on earth were they about? What were they talking about? What are these crazy things? Well, Graham, I can inform you, according to Wikipedia, that Manimal is an American superhero, and I use that term very loosely, <laughs> television series created by Glenn A. Larson and Donald R. Boyle. It ran on NBC from September 30th to December 17th, 1983. That's it. That's your lot. <laughs> Just over two months. <laughs> short and sweet. <laughs> Very short. I'm not so sweet. The show centers on the character Jonathan Chase, or as he likes to be known by his uh, pajamas, JC, uh, who is Simon <laughs> McCorkendale, a shape-shifting man who can turn himself into any animal he chooses. He uses his ability to help the police solve crimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Only two people are aware of Jonathan's secret, his friend Ty Earl and police detective Brooke McKenzie. Jonathan and Ty would assist Brooke with the case she was working on, with Jonathan transforming himself in an an- into an animal when it became useful. <laughs> Which is sometimes, always, never. I don't know what the order of operations is for that. I don't know. Um <laughs> On the other side of the coin, we have Auto Man, which is an American superhero television series. Again, superhero, yeah, okay. Produced mm-hmm. by Glenn A. Larson. Again, it's a Glenn A. Larson double bill once again. Isn't is. this the sixth <laughs> shows by Glenn A. Larson? The man was prolific. <laughs> he really was. This aired for 12 episodes again, although 13 were actually made. The Mystical 13th was only released, I believe, on a DVD compilation. Correct. Um, it ran between uh, 1983 and 1984. It consciously emulates the visual stylistics of the Walt Disney Pictures live action film Tron in the context of a superhero TV series. Automan, the automatic man, not to be confused with Otto Man, who's just a guy who sits at the end of your bed, which he calls himself quite a lot, follows the adventures of a police officer and computer programmer named Walter Nebisher, played by Desi Anas Jr., who has created an artificial intelligent crime fighting program that generated a hologram in the form of Chuck Wagner, uh, mm. which is able to leave the computer world at night and fight crime only when there's enough power. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We'll come to the nuances of uh, Otto Man's <laughs> abilities, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I think we should. But there you go. Those are our two shows, two superhero shows at either end of the antithesis wheel. One is all nature and one is all tech. Well, who's going to win? We don't know. We don't decide these things in the end. The stars do. 
in this case. Um, so what we've done is, of course, as the usual way with this, we split it into a series of categories. This time we've chosen story and characters, costumes and sets, music, sound effects, visual cinematography and reception influence. And what we shall do is pitch the various parts of these shows to each other or to you for consideration, have a little discussion, decide on a score for each section, of course, out of 10. And then when we add those up, we're going to know who's the winner and who's the loser, aren't we? It's as straightforward as that. It doesn't we get shall. any more complicated. And so without further ado, let's just dive into the story of the first part. And Adrian, please describe in your own special way <laughs> the story and characters of Manimal. Okay, well, let's focus on the story first. I'm going to go through this in some detail because there's a lot of story here. So, um, well, after a double credit sequence, not just one, <laughs> yeah. but two, but um, <laughs> this follows Larson's one, you know, he just puts shots of the show in for no reason. So it's like yes, Battlestar Galactica. It's so he's got some shots of the upcoming show, followed by the slightly trippy proper credits. There's lots of... Uh, Lots of weird effects and stuff in those credits. A bit trippy there. It's all go down at the gun range, the smallest gun range known to man, as illegal <laughs> as illegal gun runners are doing a big deal with shady, nondescript Middle Eastern operatives. Unbeknownst to them, they're being observed by a Black Panther hidden in the roof. <laughs> That's a sentence I never thought I'd write. <laughs> as the gun runner leaves to head, head to their warehouse, he is tailed by debonair man about town, Jonathan Chase, played by Simon McCorkendale, disguised in his finest evening wear. He's so smart, he's wearing a scarf. Hailing a cab, JC, as is known as his pyjamas, follows the henchman down to the warehouse. En route, he starts heavy breathing and bulging, then disappears from the back of the cab, <laughs> leaving the cabbie not too annoyed at not getting paid. When is a cabbie where the fare has just disappeared? Because go, oh, where's he gone? No, it wouldn't yes. be that, would it? You'd be a bit alone. Just get in the back of a cab and start breathing heavily <laughs> and bulging and telling him, "Not don't look back, don't yeah, don't look back here." Whatever don't you do, don't here. look back, cabby. Keep your eyes on the road. <laughs> keep your eyes on the road. <sighs> <laughs> he goes full I, on. I really James, can't. He goes full on James Mason, doesn't he? Keep your eyes <laughs> Just, on yeah. the road. It's really funny that bit. Um, anyway, at the warehouse where they keep a handy manifest list with all the guns and ammunition on, that made me laugh loads. That did that manifest list, sewing machine, hand grenades. <laughs> like, oh, what's in each box? Are you smuggling guns? No. Let me look at no. that manifest. Ah, oh, knew we shouldn't oh. have written them down. <laughs> That's right. Don't put it on the manifest. Yeah, if I was smuggling guns, I'm not. I would not keep a handy list for the cops to find. Yeah, I know, and I might. You know, as an aside, I might put them in a more robust vehicle. <laughs> as well if I'm, if I'm going to do that <laughs> true true that is very true anyway the panther's back and it makes a note of said manifest <laughs> panther's really clever after loading up all the trucks they head out to deliver the arms as they leave oh police detective brooke mckenzie played by melanie anderson who was dale arden in flash gordon she was um, uh, she's driving past with her partner she gets suspicious at the fact that someone would be delivering sewing machines which is the cover of the guns this late at night who does that Who's delivering sewing machines? <laughs> well, maybe they just want to get them sewing for the morning. at this hour. <laughs> in this neighbourhood? I think not. Amazon have made a business out of delivering things at night. They don't get too much trouble for it. Exactly. Giving chase, the drivers get freaked out by the panther that's stowed away in the back and tip the truck over. Guns and ammo everywhere. One of them legs it and Brooke gives chase. Whilst at the truck, her partner is shot and left for dead. The panther is also on the chase, but gets shot in the leg and limps off, leaving a trail of blood. Losing her man, Detective Mackenzie follows a trail of blood to a darkened alley, only to see the gentleman about town, JC, appear, say, hello, and bugger off. <laughs> 
(laughs) He literally does that. The panther is nowhere to be seen. And Brooke starts to make the leap, we all would, that JC might just be that panther. (laughs) 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 The obvious conclusion, that man must be a panther. When you rule out the impossible, whatever <laughs> remains. Must be probably, yeah, whatever. Anyway, it turns out JC is a professor at the NYU in the police science department. That's not real. <laughs> and that's a heavy bronze plaque as well. <laughs> don't, get, don't, don't be under that when that falls off. So Brooke heads there to check him out. After a bit of a class, she confronts JC as to what he was doing around the dock so late at night. This leads nowhere because he just says, <laughs> I wasn't there. Um <laughs> Anyway, he blatantly was. He blatantly was, yeah. But she uh, notices that he's got his wound. He's, he's got a wound in his arm. He really oh. must be that panther. <laughs> the clues are mounting up. <laughs> Brooke then tells the escaped henchman, the one she was following last night, to a nightclub, as do JC and his sidekick Ty Earl, played by Glyn Terman. There, they enjoy a spot of dancing to a drugged-up version of "Beat It" by Michael Jackson. That's before weird. Brooke apprehends the henchman, and he ends up in the slammer. No surprise, he gets off and leaves. So they follow him down to the warehouse again. Stupid henchman. He just heads straight to the warehouse. <laughs> well, he checks the manifest. <laughs> he checks the manifest. And they're loading up more guns and ammo. Wow. Obviously, because he like <laughs> he lost the last lot, um, they got blown up at the accident. I don't know, when the truck tipped over. Here, Brooke gets into a shootout. The panther intervenes and everything blows up. It's yeah, big explosion. Big explosion of a, of a very small model. More lost yeah. guns. I mean, no one seems to notice that all these guns are getting blown. <laughs> these guns cost <laughs> yeah. a lot of money. You know, these people behind them are not going to be happy. Yeah, someone's going to be angry about yeah, that. Yeah, they're going to struggle to fulfill their client's order at this rate. Anyway, the following day, the henchman meets with his boss and they head down to, the, to have a walk in the park. A nearby hawk follows them, as does Brooke, where she steals an old man's camera to take some photos of the head honcho meeting with the even bigger head honcho. Turns out to be Ursula Andress for some reason. I don't know why. She just did it. The minor head honcho nicks the camera... Um, but the hawk is having none of it and steals it back and drops it to the floor, probably breaking it right in front of the child. <laughs> like, ah! 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 Flies off. And that made me laugh a lot. Anyway, the hawk heads over to Andres's hotel room where JC suddenly appears and breaks into her apartment. The clues are mounting up that these animals are probably him mm-hmm. and the fact that it's called Manimal. She takes a call from General Hunt who is clearly the even higher head honcho behind the deal. And you can oh, tell yes. this because he spends all his time drinking cocktails in a pool. Pretty much what he does. <laughs> he does, JC yeah. overhears their plans and then escapes. Not before turning into a cat and sticking his head in her boobs. <laughs> it is a slow undress, to be fair. <laughs> but it's just the cat's look when he comes out. Like, it's, just, it's really um, weird. It's, it's very really weird. Anyway, <laughs> uh, they decide to scare the lowly henchman into revealing where the deal is going to take place, so they scare him with a snake. He cracks like a cheap egg and spills the beans. <laughs> only for Brooke, he really did. Only for Brooke to enter and pick up the snake, as she's now convinced that JC can turn into animals. Only for JC to enter the room as himself. She faints and wakes up at JC's house. At that moment, there was too many innuendos in the room to be allowed. <laughs> she came in, grabbed a man's snake, he screamed, he passed out, and then she fainted. Yeah, still too much. There's too many innuendos in one space and short space of time. It all went crazy. <laughs> but she faints, wakes up at JC's house in one of his robes, and nothing else. She is told to sleep by JC. <laughs> but does not. He refuses and to build. And it's daytime. yeah. <laughs> and inadvertently lets out a black panther from a cage whilst trying to turn on the light switch. That's the most confusing and dangerous <laughs> light switch I've ever seen in my life. Why has he got it caged anyway? Yeah, why? Here she reads of JC's past in Vietnam and learns of his ability to turn into any animal. It's kind of cool, I guess. Yeah. Together, they decide to thwart the arms deal, but she is captured and ends up on the big boat where it's all going down. JC turns into a panther where he enlists the aid of a leopard, tiger, and two lions to stop things. <laughs> they oh all my. head over to the boat, running past the head of the gang from 
any which way you can or every which way yes. you lose. He's now just a drunkard on the street who yes, pulls out the thingy correct. in a kind of wino joke sort of thing, whatever. So yeah, they all head over to the boat. The bad guys are somewhat nonplussed to be attacked by giant felines until someone <laughs> throws nerve gas and knocks the panther out and all the other cats go home. Tied up together on the ship, JC comes round and breaks out the panther once again and frees Brooke with more bulging and, and heavy breathing. She knocks out the easiest henchman in town. <laughs> that, she just, she just, uh, it's, oh, it's out. <laughs> Not before someone else faints, um, before breaking in on the big meeting with the arms dealers. She's outgunned. But the panther jumps through a window, and that's that. I mean, that is literally <laughs> it. There's, no, there's nothing more. That's that. That's all That's all you wrote. End of arms deal, and they head home to have some tea. Meanwhile, General Hunt is attacked by a shark in his pool. <laughs> that's really random. And that's how that it bit. ends. That is how it ends. This is all gibberish is and nonsense in a very mid-80s way. Ridiculous plot moments and stupid protagonists and antagonists. It's all ridiculous. Um, none of this makes a lick of sense. Um, I thought it was pretty awful. And the shark ending just and just rounded off a crap effort. JC's a sleaze bag, a real creep. Yes, yes, <laughs> he just, is. He's just a real. He's horrible. He's you know Simon Corkendale plays him as like. I think he's trying to be like James Bond, but you know, <laughs> yeah, he's, yes, but he's he like he's James Bond in a view to a kill, you know, yeah. which is not the good James <laughs> yeah. Bond. No, um, <laughs> he undresses Brooke before putting her to bed, and then goes, "But I'm a doctor." <laughs> so. <laughs> Sleazy doctor. He's a, yeah, he plays like a horrible man. Brooke's unusual, I guess, although she's kind of, we get a few of these sort of things, but she's a bit feisty in the supporting role. But all too often, she just gets in overhead and always has to be saved by JC in his various mm. animal roles. Ty is okay, I guess. His sidekick, they're okay. The rest of the cast are pretty forgettable. Um, Ursula Andress and the henchmen and all that lot are a bit silly and it doesn't really go it doesn't really go anywhere. I don't know why she's in it. Certainly not for her acting. She's also, she's terrible, Ursula Andress. And too many people faint for no reason, just fainting. Yes, yes, there is um, a lot of that in that. Yeah, as as it stands, I mean, I mean, they're the main characters. That's the story. It is what it is. It's not very good. I gave this a three. Yes. So just to so I think the three is actually about on par. I did notice a few. There's a few highlights. I'm just going to bring out. There's a couple yeah, yeah. Of bring out the highlights. Well. There's not many. It's not going to take long. Um, <laughs> one highlight for me was when uh, the, not Dale Ardon, but whatever her name's character, character's name is, I forget. Um, it's a great moment when she chases after someone in a pushback and gets smacked off with a with a suitcase, a briefcase. That made me laugh out loud. <laughs> she just gets smacked over the head with a briefcase. She's like, oh, <laughs> it's like, get off that bike. That made me laugh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. The fact that she, when the camera drops and it's dropped in front of that kid who should it by rights, just go, eh. Um, <laughs> They, uh, she just grabs the camera and just immediately rips the film out. It's like, oh, thanks. So that's, that's got that guy's pictures on. Yeah. And, she, and she even says to him, I'm sorry, I'll get some of these pictures to you. It's like, you've ruined it. You've just taken it out. You took it out before it even rewound. <laughs> so you just exposed the film. <laughs> Absolutely. And then there's loads of the, the final thing that I noted and this, there's loads of peculiar innuendo in it. But this is something that comes back in Auto Man as well. But it's peculiar in you end. It's like when she when she sits down at his lecture, which made yeah. me laugh out loud. There's a woman just there going, oh, he's, I bet he's got a big elephant-sized penis, essentially. I'm like, is this a appropriate yeah. joke? And he goes, I can hear you. Yeah. Well, I thought that was a nod to um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, there is. I think there's a little I think that was a nod to Raiders of the Lost Ark, that bit. Um, yes. But it doesn't actually say that because he's, when he's in man form, he gets all the powers of animals. Why has he got super, no. super sensitive hearing? And I'm still not sure exactly where he stores his clothes, but you know, we'll maybe come to that when we talk about costumes. Well, when we talk about costumes, yeah. I mean, well, yeah. I think <laughs> I didn't get into that because that's a, that's a whole Don't. other conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there is, like you said, it's a, such a crappy story. I may have it beat with Iron Man, but it's such a crappy story that there's very little really that happens in it, you know. And considering it's about his ability to transform into different animals, 
not that many in it, really. Um, no. So, and you only really see him transform what in one one, even though late, in later episodes you do see him transform into other ones. But in this, I'm just not sure, and I'm I'm, I'm still a little bit puzzled about the physics of all of this. I'm pretty sure there's a, <laughs> there's, there's, there's some physics rule about the cons- we don't need the con- physics, <laughs> the conservation of mass or something. I'm pretty sure would apply here. And anyway, but that's that's by the by. I also um, I actually gave this. A, I gave it a four, but I'd, I'd concede to a three just because I thought four was quite low. <laughs> so, nah. uh, but this, I didn't like anything about it. I thought the characters were weak and wooden. Actually, Dale Arden's character, whatever she's called in this, um, she was she was the only kind of interesting. She kind of gave it her all in this. But McCorkendale, he's fresh off the back of uh, Sword and the Sorcerer here at this point. That was this is his next job after that, and then this is oh, before Falcon's it? Crest. Yeah, where was Jaws three in there? Oh, I think that comes after. That comes after. I think it might be after Auto Man, or it's just before. I think I don't. You oh, have to okay. check out the lineage. But this is this look. is his big break after um, Sword and the Sorcerer, which I suppose he's. You can sort of see why they might pick someone who's got kind of that weird English British. Yeah, he's a bit proto of- Remington Steel, isn't he? Yes, totally. And you can see why he would fit well in Falcon's Crest when he's in there. Ironically, he never changes into a falcon in Falcon's Crest, which would be brilliant if he did. <laughs> you would have thought so. Or neither did he turn into a shark, although he does get eaten by a shark um, in Jaws 3. That's true. It's just weird. Told that, it, ends, it ends with a Jaws homage, which is just odd in every way that it can be. How did the shark get in the swim pool? Why would it be in a pool full of chlorine? Wouldn't survive long anyway, even as a shark. It's too big. Mm. Now, that, the size of that... That fin that comes out would mean that shark's about a 25-footer, yeah. which is a lot bigger than that pool he's in. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, Jaws 3 was just before Manimal. You know, oh, going God. to IMDb. That's terrible. And Falcon, he was also in a, a TV movie called Falcon's Gold. Oh, dear. Just before it's Jaws. <laughs> it's just, it does all the animal things. <laughs> he's He knows about animals. Get him in there. Anyway, so, um, and I suppose in summary then, with a with a summary three apiece, three from me and a three from you, it's not a great start for Manimal, is it that? It's not, no, no. Okay, well, shall I regale you with the tales of fantastic AI technologies? I, f- I feel we need it after that, uh, you know, after that <laughs> n- nature-heavy story. It, well, with Auto Man, we've got a slightly different tack. It's another Glenn A. Larson production, as you've already said. Again, this has got Desi Arnaz Jr. in it. That's the son of Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball of Desi Lou. We'll probably talk about that a bit later. Um, it's got Chuck Wagner in it, Heather McNair, Robert Lansing, and Gerald S. Auckland, and, of course, a few other characters which I'll deal with as we come across them. Um, the pilot episode was just called Auto Man, and it mm. was first aired on December the 15th, 1983 in the US. It was actually aired on Saturday the 12th of May, 1984 in the UK. Um, on BBC One at 5.20 on a Saturday. So it was after Grandstand and the news. She's quite a key slot for us, isn't it? That was for us, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but short, it was a short-lived episode series for the BBC, really, but they thought, oh, crap, we thought that was going to be a long... We had a few legs in it, that one, anyway. This uh, particular pilot was written by Glenn A. Larson, directed by Lee Has... Uh, Sorry, Lee H. Kazin. He previously directed episodes of Space 1999, Man from Atlantis, MacGyver, and Mission Impossible. They all seem to do the rounds with this Glenn A. Larson produced mm. stuff. They all seem to have the same kind of, same actors almost, the same people. I think in this one, there's even the same bloody, couple of the same people in it. There's the same cabbie. Same cabbie, yeah. So he gets around that cabbie with yeah. his leather cabbie which hat. Makes these, anyway. Which makes these the extended Glenn A. Larson universe. Well, I think they all are part of that. And then, funny to say that, we'll probably talk about a weird thing that happens with the animal later about that. Anyway, um, so the story then for this masterpiece. Um, well, this is clearly an episode built around establishing. I'm going to say this at the start. This is clearly an episode built around establishing the characters and devices of the show. The basic premise of this entire thing is a computer nerd creates a holographic man called Auto Man because that's kind of there is a story here. It's just really weird. It takes a really <laughs> weird turn. There's weird twists in it. 
I'm just going to go with explain it as is. Um, mm-hmm. So, as I said, this is clearly an episode built around establishing the characters and devices of the show. In terms of story, there's a really weird plot which revolves around a series of high-tech businessmen being kidnapped while en route to some kind of either job interview or they're going just on a business trip. And the police have got wind that this is happening after 10 or 10 or 11 of these mysterious kidnappings, vanishings happen, but seem none the wiser about where the people have gone or why. <laughs> They've just vanished without a trace from the airport. Yep. And that is something weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lieutenant Curtis, who's um, in this played by Robert Lansing, I think, yeah, asks Walter, our our chief nerd, um, on the QT, uh, and with strict instructions to keep everything secret, which is somewhat, I felt, counterproductive to a police investigation. (laughs) It might explain why they haven't been able to actually get anywhere, because nobody's allowed to talk about it. He tells, asks him to use his computers, because in this, this, Walter's some kind of policeman slash computer engineer. It's never really explained what what kind of role he is. What What, he is. What does he he do? (laughs) I read somewhere that he was meant to be a policeman that had been taken off the beat for whatever reason and just given this office job. And there's an implication in the story that he's been basically put in there because they've got to use more computers as part of the police investigations and therefore you know, they're, they're putting all their budget into this. And mm. you know, I got that whole gang of gimmicks kind of conversation going on in my head oh, around absolutely. that point. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so he's got to use his computers to analyse the tons of complex data, um, which is all on basically written on what looked like napkins. <laughs> Back of receipts. Uh, back of receipts and napkins, which she just kind of dumps them because I've just put that into your computer and figure Cut, it out, will you? This, this clearly one. a link. And and what it made me think was, okay, um, a load of high-profile tech industry engineers and the like have gone missing from an airport while they're on business trips and don't get to their destination. It doesn't take a lot of figuring out so that something going on at the airport, really. <laughs> <laughs> just you know, it's acting. You know, it's just old-fashioned policing, I suppose. Anyway, he you, asks uh, with that kind of thinking. You know, <laughs> you should get a, you should get a job on the police force. So he asks Walter, who at this point also has briefly introduced this idea that he's created some kind of holographic artificial intelligence to a woman who's just in the office who quite likes him. <laughs> Yeah. So at this point, he's just sort of she's come to see him and going, Walter, you're obsessed with computers. You're such a geeky nerd, nerdy geek, but she kind of likes him. He then turns to the camera in a real moment and goes, well, is this why you won't go out with me? Which made me laugh out loud before he then shows, tries to impress her with his crazy talk about how he's made this artificial person, but he won't appear yet. It all felt genuinely underhand innuendo at this point. I was starting to get, because she kept saying, let me see it. And he kept going, it won't come out. And I'm thinking, what? All right. What are we, what are we talking about, about here? <laughs> are we talking about, a, a, you know, an artificial intelligence that you've invented that needs power and it needs to figure, keep saying, it needs to figure it out. It needs to figure stuff out. It's like, Right. Okay. I'm sure there's an undercurrent of subtext here. I, I'm not quite, you know, not quite, anyway. So these high profile tech industry engineers and the likes have gone to the airport for business trips and they don't get where they're going. So acting on a hunch about where the next kidnapping might take place, which involves a phone call from someone saying, I'm at the airport and they're doing it again at the airport <laughs> where, the, where all those other people disappear from at the airport. So he goes to the airport. Did I leave the uh, alien on? <laughs> and he heads there. Um, and to meet a somewhat mysterious Interpol agent, friend slash lover. It's never really quite explained what their relationship is, but it's kind of weird. She's kind of doughy, glowy-eyed, bit sort of mysterious, plays it a bit like a, sort of a, almost like a spy. Yeah, and she looks like she's straight out of her uh, Ultravox video. <laughs> she does. She really does. Um, so he goes and checks in with her, because she's the one that rang him from the airport to say they're doing it again. They're doing it again. But it's not really clear who she is or why she's helping. And what are they she's doing? to do with Interpol. What, what are they doing? They're just taking him to another part of the airport. I've seen that happen loads of times. I've never suspected business tech kidnap. Anyway, I well, didn't suspect it. Maybe so, I should have. So, so, so much for you being in the police force. <laughs> anyway, Lieutenant Curtis heads there um, with his somewhat mysterious Interpol agent friend. He goes over there. 
to check into what might be happening. He discovers that the kidnappers are, in fact, agents from a security company. Um, and they're taking off, <laughs> taking these employees off in a private jet for reasons. It's never really explained at this point why. They're just t- taking them on what looks like a really luxury trip. Like, coming on board here, there's a, it's a private jet just for you. There's an implication that this is at gunpoint, but it's never really explained why. They, they have to be coerced in such a way onto such a luxury flight. It's like no. being taken from uh, economy class on an airplane and going, right, we're going to take you off economy and take you in that private jet with your own luxuries and everything. And like, ah, yeah, I'll go for that. Um, <laughs> and then they put a gun at your head and go, right, get on that plane. Like, you don't need to put a gun to my head, I'll, I'll happily <laughs> I'll go. I'll happily go. Yeah, this is an upgrade. This is a massive upgrade anyway. So he's investigating that. He tries to pull a ruse on them by pretending to be someone he isn't. So the lieutenant, who looks like a lieutenant from the police force, walks up to them, acting like a lieutenant from the police force, asks to see their identification like a lieutenant in the police force, but claims he's actually from some kind of security Interpol check. And then he okays their ID anyway, mm-hmm. um, which is really weird. But in that process of you know the, ru- the, the uh, ruse, it all sorts of falls apart. And in the end, you get, the lieutenant ends up getting kidnapped as well with his Interpol friend getting chased off under perilous circumstances, it would seem. Indeed. So now he's gone missing. So now there's another kidnapping. So when they get, we cut back to the police station, everyone's talking about the latest kidnapping. And Doug McClure, who, who turns up in this mysteriously yeah. for a couple of scenes, um, he, t- he sort of talks to these uh, angry, the captain of the police. So Lieutenant is more on Walter's side. The police captain, who is played by uh, Gerald Loch- Lachlan, um, Captain E. Boyd is called, Captain Boyd. He's angry all the time, Captain Boyd. And he's, <laughs> he's particularly angry about this. And no, he's not happy at all. He's like, well, now we've got another policeman gone missing. What happened? What, what, you know, does nobody know anything? And the guy's like, well, he was at the airport. <laughs> They're all going missing from the airport. And this, anyway, <laughs> so. <laughs> Do we need to check the airport out? We, yeah. anyways, anyway, it turns out that the, uh, the, the, it turns out it's not really mysterious, the whole thing, what's happening really. A security firm named Global Guard is meeting the tech staff at the departure gate for their flight and convincing them that they've been asked to escort them on a private plane to their destination with heavy influences on luxury treatment. That's what's that's that's what's actually happening. Uh, what, what in reality, once they're on the plane, they're then whisked off to a remote Swiss mountainside resort to live and work the rest of their lives <laughs> in some kind of luxury hedonistic sex camp. <laughs> it's just plain odd. It all gets a bit woolly at that point. I don't think they thought that bit through. They got as far as Switzerland and thought, what are we going to do now? <laughs> what was it called? We'll talk- well, Alpine something, Alpine, wasn't it? Alpine Meadows or Alpine something, wasn't Alpine it? Alpine yeah. Tech Firm or something. Something like, weird oh, like that. Yeah, it's a big sign on the airport thing. Anyway, I'll come back to that. So meanwhile, the clueless police are clueless. And somehow Walter's experiments with holograms, programming data, data AI and modems and techie sounding stuff, computers can talk to each other now have led to some kind of self-awareness and the creation of Automan, an automatic man that embodies the computer world, etc., but with aspects of personality imbued from Walter feeding in pictures of <laughs> Paul Newman, Christopher Reed, Burt Reynolds, <laughs> Lee Majors, Tom Selleck, and Richard Burton, as well as notes on fictional detectives like James Bond and Sherlock Holmes. So just to note, no actual detectives, and they're all the rest are actors. Yeah. I'm not sure how much use this AI is going to be, no, really, but okay, no. anyhow. So... Automan pushes himself into the real world when there's not enough power, and he has somehow figured out something important. So he only really appears when he's got something important, because all the time he's asking him questions, he's like, oh, he won't appear, he hasn't figured it out yet. <laughs> okay, just turn the lights off, he'll come up, he'll come on the power down. The power's left. Anyway, <laughs> um, so he's not alone either. When He he, he also comes with us, when, when he finally appears, um, he also um, comes with a small floating orb called Cursor, mm-hmm. which is very similar to the, the little character of Bit in Tron. Yes, very much. Um, so it's basically lot. the same thing. But yeah, it does, absolutely. But anyway, 
Um, and Kusu can seemingly draw objects into existence, so cars, tanks, planes, of which they all appear, and also seems obsessed with harassing women. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a randy bit. <laughs> yeah, it just, zo- it just zooms up and chases some woman, and she wears a scream. Yeah. And then in the, in the opening credits, it's, it sort of zooms over a picture of, I think it's the woman out of the fall guy, but it's maybe, I forget what her name the actress is. But Draws a love heart around it. Draws a love heart around that. And it's all a bit like, and he's like, hey, calm down there, bit. Calm down there, cursor. Like, and then and then don't forget as well, it also just wobbles someone's boobs as well. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it does. It's just, it's just a bit of a pest. Um, <laughs> it's a common theme between Manimal and... <laughs> it is. There is a lot of that here. So initially, Auto Man scares people in a cafe. Um, because he just appears to save the day when there's, there's, for some reason this this gang take a liking to the girl that Walter likes. He's gone to gone on a date with her, which is a really lame place to take her on a date anyway. She goes on a date, and then a really weird gang comprising a guy that's always in these things. The, the, the two baddies are in it, like the baddies from everything. There's like I forget the name of the main actor, but one of them is that. Yeah, I think I last saw him in, he's in Total Recall, he's in V, the series, he's in loads of stuff. Anyway, they look over and go, she's real pretty, ain't she? He goes over there, gets really angry with Walter for no reason, smashes a bottle, he's about to stab him with it. Fortunately, Auto Man steps in and they all run away scared because Auto Man. Because so, <laughs> he just appears out of nowhere in a giant blue sparkly suit and goes, hello, and speaks in a kind of really booming sort of Matt Berry kind of way. Hey, you, get away from them. Really weird it is. Anyway, so... Walter and Auto Man, once this is, you know, they've, they've gone through that bit. Um, and by, at that point, by the way, Auto Man also, he, he scares those people off and then encourages Walter just abandon his date. She's fainted in the shock of seeing Auto Man in, for real because before that, it was just, you know, an idea. And is Auto Man ever going to appear? And he finally appears. She kind of collapses in shock. He just leaves and goes, right, I've got to go now. Bye. <laughs> well, it's Glenn A. Larson's, um, you know, his uh, way to just deal with people he doesn't want in the scene anymore. He just hasn't faint. Look how many yes. faint in Manimal. Just all over well, the yes. place. How and many people have you ever seen faint in real life? Well, Not Doug many. McClure even in a minute, he faints as well. Oh, this. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, so Walter abandons his date, which he seemed really desperate for, because all the way through he's kind of leching after almost any woman that comes near him. Yep. So he even does it to the Interpol woman. He gets all like, oh, she's, you know, she, she's too sophisticated for me. It's like, what are you on here? Anyway, Walter and Otterman set about unpicking the kidnappings, trying to figure out what's happening. The angry Captain Boyd just gets angrier. And start shouting at everybody and issues Walter with a you're on borrowed time kind of conversation repeatedly. Does that a lot because of reasons that aren't explained. He just doesn't like technology or Walter or anything to do with computers. It's old fashioned policing. At one point, by the way, just gets in the lift and goes, right, we'll try and figure this out after the weekend. I'm pretty sure that isn't the sort of textbook policing, you know, going crimes home. and all. Just, yeah, I'm going home. Crimes and <laughs> stuff for the weekend. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the Interpol woman get, ends up getting kidnapped anyway because she just gets in the way and gets kidnapped and gets taken to the same Swiss resorts as everyone else. Yeah, to and live Walter a life Auto- hedonistic pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Walter and Auto Man manage to subdue a henchman and then follow the kidnapper's aeroplane to Switzerland in the aeroplane, or the autoplane, I guess you'd call it, really. because the- It, is the, the auto- it is the autoplane, yes. Yes, because the cursor can draw this car, which is essentially a, a, a Lamborghini, I think, which is drawn, and then they get in that. Um, and then, um, and this is all, by the way, I haven't even mentioned the fact that there's a really creepy part where Walter can climb inside Automan. I'm not sure even how, how I could even address that without <laughs> it sounding kind of a thick, weird and, and creepy. But anyway, so they, uh, they end up um, flying over to Switzerland on somebody that's got very limited power uh, during the day. It worried me that because that's a long flight from where they were. Um, anyway. Yeah, L- LA to um, Switzerland. That's not... Yeah, that, it's not a short a, flight, that. No, it's not. Anyway, but they fly in this you know, super speedy jet, which would, I would imagine would mean that they were less following and they, if they knew where they were going to go, they could have got there before them, but that didn't happen. They just landed after them. Well, they didn't really land. Um, inconveniently, <laughs> Ottoman just runs out of power as he's just due to land on the runway. 
So he just disappears and just drops him like on and, the and runway. And at that point, the laws of momentum and physics go right out the window as they just yes. stop as if they weren't moving in the slightest. When in fact yeah, they, they would kind of career through the ground, career through the, and they'd be ripped to shreds at about three hundred mile an hour as their bodies exactly. would pull off a bit. Which is odd because in other aspects of this, the physics of the being inside the auto vehicles, because the auto vehicles are actually holographic projections. Yeah, the physics actually manifest themselves. So when he's turning the really sharp corners, you see him get jolted about inside the car. So yeah. all of a sudden, those phys- physics rules don't apply when he gets dropped out of an aeroplane at 500 mile an hour because he would be, like you say, be broken and and and, and, and killed. You know, it's not nice. That. Anyway. Very much so. So we're in Switzerland. Uh, Walter and Ottoman managed to subdue the henchmen and they follow the kidnappers aeroplane, like I said, but then they, they land on the air runway, let's just say, because it's easier than trying to explain the stupidity that followed, leaving Walter to try and infiltrate the resort. But at this point, Ottoman disappeared and he can't reappear until there's enough power. Walter finds the lieutenant there, happy, it seemed to me. Um, there'd been talk of interrogations. They don't really happen. He just says, we're going to interrogate you, and we're going to ask you about the people you've told about this. And he goes, okay, after that, you know, you'd be living with everyone else. So, all right, looks pretty good. When you see it, it's a giant yeah. swim pool, really nice-looking hotel, looks five-star, and loads and loads of sort of scantily-clad women sort of wandering about. They don't look like they're that. Nobody there is looks like a prisoner or an angry one at that. There's one guy that looks kind of upset that he's there because I think he's, Someone says, because he sees somebody we knows, and he goes, oh, your wife's been wondering where you are. It's like, well, she would do. It's dis- <laughs> just disappeared off a flight. Never came back. And the, the plan, their plan, their grand plan, is just keep all these people there working and living. That's it. That's the plan. That's not an evil plan. It's just weird. <laughs> it's, they're kidnapping people from their jobs to make them do their jobs in Switzerland. But they do it's have not- <laughs> they do have henchmen in red outfits with guns. Yeah. It's really, it's like, they just didn't th- think any of that through anyway. So obviously, Walter, I say, he finds the Interpol woman in the somewhat late assistance of Auto Man, thanks to the evil boss turning off the lights. So he goes, turn those lights off, and then lights off, and that, of course, means there's enough power for Auto Man. Handily enough, they managed to infiltrate the resort, where no one seems that bothered that they're prisoners, so it's not like a general, like a mad rush of people trying to get away from there anyway. And then in something of, of a mysterious set of circumstances, they chased Hamilton. That's the guy played by Patrick... McNee, I think is his name, is it? Patrick McNee? Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Patrick McNee, sort of famous, you know, baddie, Baltar, but um, not Baltar, sorry, the imperious leader in Battlestar Galactica so, and a few of those baddies he's played. Um, Avengers, of course, he's famous for, isn't he? Um, Steed in the Avengers. Anyway, so they, it's a really mysterious bit, this. They trick them into climbing into a holographic version of the aeroplane for their escape. Yeah, because Cursor can make anything. Cursor draws yeah. the, the stuff so into So Cursor reality. makes like a holo- Yeah, he makes a holographic plane, um, which they climb into, and then they're trying to make their escape. And then, so Hamilton and his henchmen are in this fake holographic jet plane. And then once they're up at 30,000 feet, I'm guessing presumably they drop to their deaths because yeah, they yeah, sort yeah. of look at it. It starts to disappear. They go, ah! And then we never see or hear from them again. It's just like, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they will do. They'll be, they'll, they'll be splattered somewhere, yeah. So yeah, so they were literally murdered by... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ottoman, really. Just for kidnapping something, you wanting to make them live in a hedonistic well. Yeah, I'm underland. not sure what crime they did, or that you've got jurisdiction <laughs> in Switzerland to just go and drop people from airplanes on a whim, let alone, you know, how you explain that. Anyway. I don't know. So, mo- so most of the pilot sets up the role of Ottoman, how it works with Walter and other characters, and the odd parameters, like working only at night because there's less power being used, even though all the lights go on. I don't get it. And also the <laughs> auto car, auto plane, all that. So we get to see all the gadgets that will, you know, eventually Ottoman's going to need throughout the episode. We don't see the autocopter that comes later on. Um, it's odd, given that uh, he can seemingly appear wherever Walter instigated a modem connection, that he really needs a car. 
I don't get the need for his vehicles. He can just appear where he wants, I'm guessing. Um, it's, I don't a bit, know. it's a bit weird. I don't know. I don't it's a bit weird. It's a bit woolly some of it. Anyway, I also noted that he he likes to, he parks the car at one point. He parks the damn car. It's just it goes invisible. <laughs> it just appear he can draw it and dis and, and undraw it wherever he likes. He doesn't need to park. He goes to the extent of reverse parallel parking that thing in a really neat way outside that building. And then it just disappears. It's like, oh why do that? Why would you go to all that effort? <laughs> just get out and make it disappear. Exactly. I suppose it's all for fun. There's weird sexual overtones in the show, really odd phrases and real weird moments of harassment and hedonistic slave islands where successful tech engineers are left to just live. It's really odd. And leer over women in bikinis. And leer over women in loads of bikinis. There's quite a bit of leering going on throughout this whole thing. Yeah. It's all a bit odd. It's a really tonally off show. It's meant to be for kids. And I think somebody sort of made parts of it for kids because the Desianis Jr. character at certain times looks a bit like Marty McFly. There's a McFly in us about him. Um, mm. Auto Man's character is really weird. Um, and my guessing is that um, I wondered if the people who made Halo and Cortana had at some point watched Auto Man because there was a very weird similarity between Cortana and Auto Man. <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> Never thought um, of it, but yes. I thought that the Roxanne Coldwell, who played Heather in it, in it which is his kind of, I don't know what, she's not a love interest, but she's just a woman that kind of likes him and she's into his nerdness. She's an adjunct to his nerdness. She's the efficient person. Oh, Walter, stop messing about with computers and do some real police work kind of thing. Yeah. Captain Boyd is just an angry police captain who just has an irrational hatred of anything to do with Walter. It's really funny. And it's really a really weird actor as well. It's really sort of almost kabuki theatre with him. And then you've got Robert Lansing, who's a bit of an old stalwart for this kind of thing. Superior officer, not sure of the chain of command. I'm not even sure what role he's got in terms of his relationship with Walter. <laughs> he's the keeper of keeper of napkins. It just tells everyone, <laughs> keeper of napkins, tells him to just keep everything secret. It's weird. And then I, I, I'll only mention Ted Smithers, Detective Ted Smithers. That's Doug McClough's character because he's only in it three times. Yeah. He's in it briefly at the beginning. He's in it to tell to tell Captain Boyd that Walter's gone, uh, sorry, that, uh, that Curtis has gone missing. And then later, he, for reasons that aren't ever explained, he holds Walter up by gunpoint to take him off somewhere, sees Automan and faints in a lift. Yeah. That's it. That's the, so, you know, he's a bit of a stalwart for genre actor, isn't he, Doug McClure? Hi, I'm Doug McClure. Well, he was in yeah. uh, Manimal as well. Yeah, yes. It's just, it's just, he's obviously doing the rounds anyway. Um, so because it's such a stupid story and because the characters are, are all a bit blocky and wooden in this and they don't really have a purpose, the only one that's interesting is probably Walter Rayleigh and Automan and, and everything else in this is kind of an afterthought. I don't think they put any thought into it. I gave this a four mm, okay. for its, um, for its uh, story and characters. What about you? Yeah, well, I mean, I've got not, <laughs> not got much to add beyond that. I mean, you've covered a lot of the things I wanted to say, but it's a strange thing, isn't it? It's about a man creating a living hologram using some crap home PC that then takes us to Switzerland where top execs are being kidnapped for some nefarious reason. It's never really made clear by Steve from the Avengers. I mean, who pitched that? Glassman, you've done it again. You think he's, he's went into office. Anyone want to be a henchman? Yeah, I'll, I'll do it. Anyone want to be a head of an organisation in Switzerland? Yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, I'll do it. But it's the same. It's, it's bizarrely weird. The only thing, I, I, I'd probably give it a four as well. I, the thing that raises it above Manimal, because the story's equally as crap, but it was the, I did actually quite like some of the interplay between Auto Man and Walter. Some of the, yeah, some of the, yeah. some of the sort of little dialogue between them, I thought was quite, you know, quite interesting um, and was okay, but that's about it. The rest of the cast, yeah. I thought the rest of the cast was a stereotypical mishmash from these kind of shows, from the angry, angry boss to the, the simpering woman yep. to the, it's just, it just was, wasn't it? It's just nonsense. But, you know, and uh, Doug McClaw turns up for no reason. Then everyone just forgets that he's fainted in a lift. <laughs> I don't think he's ever mentioned again. 
Maybe he's no, still he's in that he's lift. he's still there. Well, the tra- Man traps him in the lift. It's just going forever up and down, I think. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, he breaks yeah, that, it. Although that bit made me laugh. He says, ah, I can feel a thousand toasters coming on. It's like a shit Obi-Wan. <laughs> <laughs> it is a bit of, It's not the force, is it? You can feel the bread. <laughs> yeah, a th- like a million, you know, hundreds of billions of people calling out and then come in the silence. He's like, ah, I can feel a thousand toasters all coming on. And here come the electric razors. <laughs> Who wrote it's this? It's all a bit weird. It's the fact that he says he knows he knows, he knows Pac-Man. He's oh, like, he oh, yeah, Pac-Man, I know, yeah, I know Pac-Man. Yeah, but, I know Pac-Man. But Donkey Kong's a bit of an animal. <laughs> it's like, what are you saying? Yeah, there's a there's a weird, like, almost uh, Wreck-It Ralph type oh, early, so early nonsense. When he, you know, he talks to the lift. The lift has no reason or rationale for having that kind of voice. Oh, and also, don't forget as well, there's the uh, sexy traffic lights. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about that. So he, he turns to, gets the traffic lights to do what he wants, and he's like, no problem, auto man. It's like, yeah, where do what? they talk? Where did they come from? Yeah, why have they got a voice? It's all it's all like suddenly all machinery has become sentient. Yes. Like this weird uh just I mean, kind of AI, isn't it? But you know, I mean, I, I mean I get it. it. it's you know, it's it's an inverted tron, obviously. Oh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's kind yeah. of that's I mean I, I mean I haven't laboured over the because it would not you know that could maybe come later, but it is an inverted tron, so but yeah, I give it a four. Okay, well it, you know, it's the it's slim pickings between the two. <laughs> Really, because none of them are strong on story, but they weren't strong on, strong enough on story to maintain themselves into a second season. Or some say it's it and the first. Like a, these, both both these don't forget both these are double episode long. They're both they an are. hour hour twelve minutes or something. Yeah, so these are right. like ninety, you know, hundred. Yeah, so you know, we we went through it. Like, oh, no, we did. Lord. So uh, so we have a you know, I, I, I'm hesitate to call them a winner, but Automan <laughs> something's in the animal. lead at the moment. Let's yeah, something's in, yeah, Automan's in the lead at the moment. With a you know, with a resounding one better, but it's one louder. <laughs> so let's move on to our costumes and sets. Okay, well let's take a, a you know a sojourn down uh, costumes and sets avenue, and I'll uh, give you a little bit of a lowdown of what's going on in the world of Manimal in that respect. Mm-hmm, do so, please. So for all eight episodes, Adrian, the costumes were designed by the famous Emmy and Academy Award nominated French costume designer Jean-Pierre Dolay. Or Delac. Wow. According wow. to the Internet Movie Database, he's best known for Quantum Leap, Book Rogers, and many more. But this person had also worked on 50-plus TV shows and films, including pretty much every popular 80s show you can think of. Mm. Sadly, he died in 2020. Yeah. The initial bad guys set up for this. Man in full-length, double-breasted overcoat, tie and shirt. <laughs> And what looks like a butler as their henchman or a manservant. Um, the bad guy is selling weapons. The seller looks like an accountant, more informal suit, striped shirt, and looks out of place. The henchman adopts slacks, boots, tan bomber jacket, and beanie. He looks more gritty and urban, and so begins the clear differentiation between bad guys at the top and those that do the fetch, carry, running the guns, etc. Later at the dock, it's all jeans, informal jumpers, shirts, and hats. Also, most of them smoke with the cigarette hanging out of their mouths. So the clear delineation about the, this, this archetypes here. When we first encounter Dr. Jonathan Chase, he's clearly moulded on the debonair James Bond British aristocrat-like mould, dressed in formal dinner attire with a suit, bow tie and white scarf. He <laughs> he's acts, wearing a scarf. <laughs> he, he talks and acts that way too, with a classic British upper-class swarthy tone, swarthy tone. Um, since within the first 10 minutes, we've established he can, at least to this point, seemingly transform into a panther. We also quickly established the setting dynamic and his ability to store clothes during his transformations. Um, the backdrop for the whole drama is New York, or at least nondescript urban style streets and parks, city blocks and police offices, of course. Um, and when you get into those city blocks and police offices, it's the usual desks, 
phones ringing, the classic Glen A. Larson world and its police precinct tropes all the way. Mm-hmm. Though I don't doubt the credits and talent of Jean-Pierre Doliac. I think I say he's pr- pronounced that, Doliac, Doliac. Anyway, um, our first non-police officer in a town encounter with Brooke McKenzie, that's uh, obviously um, Melody Anderson, and you say Dale Arden from Flash Gordon, is in a knitted multicolour pattern tank top. <laughs> White V-neck short sleeve blouse t-shirt and a beige chino trousers. I mean, maybe she's off duty, but the rest of the police generally look like stuff in a bank or a newspaper. (laughs) Which is weird because she starts it. She's detective, but in the first scene, she's in full police uniform when she's she's driving around. Yeah, she never wears that again for the whole show. Because why would a detective be driving the beat? Exactly. Hairstyles across the board are heavy on hairspray, and so they really move. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they're, they're very round. (laughs) Round <laughs> and strong, strong with the hairspray they are here. And it's common to TV shows at the time because it maintains visual continuity. So no hair is going to be suddenly crossing somebody's forehead or out of place. True. Background details in the police station deserve a special mention, I felt. Bright orange doors, orange picture frames, and grey painted frames and sills. Something tells me this was a marketing company or magazine office that was rented out for this. Yeah. yeah. Didn't shout police station, even though it had numbers on the doors and no locks. Anyway. No. Later in the classroom of the New York University Police Science Department, note the big bronze plaque again, um, we meet Dr. Chase again, this time giving a timely lecture on the behaviour of animals and criminal minds. Brooke drops into the session, this time in an alarmingly bright pillar box red cardigan <laughs> and white high open collar blouse, with the professor now wearing a slightly less formal heavy uh, naval sports jacket, grey pullover, light blue shirt and red tie. To give him the classic lecture in a uni look, that is a common trope in almost every US TV show and film where this kind of thing features. Later, he compliments this ensemble with a grey scarf when walking outside in the near dark. Much of this show is quite dark at certain points, the way it's lit. I suppose we'll talk about that later. Yes, yes, yes. Our first encounter with Tyrone Ty C. Earl, that's Glenn Turman in the pilot only, is in a yellow gold cream shirt. It's hard to tell with the lightning. He's in a car and a cream toffee coloured sports jacket. All very smart cash. The layers are not complex here. Upper class educated doctor, lecturer, aides, formal dress or smart casual, police, uniform or suits and ties, criminals, either suits if a businessman, etc., or urban wear if more hands-on criminal henchmen. All female characters, even the NPC type characters, are generally bright colours and usually offset with white, clearly drawing the lines between the roles and archetypes. Easy to read on the screen, I suppose, all of this, between good guys, bad guys, and those outside of the realms of, uh, you know, above normality or what you would construct, you know, around the normal constraints of law and normal. So the rich outsider play by archetype, the, the Bruce Wayne, the Bond-type character, that's where we're headed for the main, so that main thing. That's what they were trying to aim for. In, in a later police scene, by the way, Brooke is wearing what looked like a local lace negligee under a pink cardigan. <laughs> it's not classic police detective attire, that. <laughs> that's what was going on. Of course, Ursula Andress is in this too, usually and initially in a full fur length coat. I'm guessing there's nothing under that, with diamond earrings inexplicably doing a deal for nerve gas. Anyway, later she gets spied on in a very awkward scene, which you've, you've already described. I won't go into that, but she just strut around naked at one point for no reason, really. You don't see her naked, but it's all implied. Sets wise mm-hmm. here, we've got New York City as the kind of the backdrop, or at least a version of it, probably on, some, on the film lot at, uh, at Warner's, I suspect, or somebody like that. There's a shooting range at the beginning, which is clearly just a room with a wooden frame to look like a shooting range. No ear defenders in sight in there. They're all going to be deaf <laughs> as posts. I'm telling you, it's loud in those places. Um, also, there's the model, the model version for the explosion made me laugh of the dock. Um, the streets and taxis, the, dock, the loading dock all, you know, with a, with a small lorry ready to transport the guns in crates. It's odd, this odd, this weird fog present in that part, but no, it doesn't ever appear ever again. It's just foggy at one particular moment. Um, the exterior New York streets and city parks, of course, like I said before, the police station corridors, 
are all seemingly for exposition. So as is always the case in almost every one of these TV shows, if they need plot exposition, they always go for a walk down the corridors, and that happens a lot in this. Also for flirting, and that also happens in car parks in these shows as well. So, you know, it's transition. Um, nightclub scene is clearly not a nightclub. It's just a room with tinsel curtains for walls, which made me laugh a lot. <laughs> um, with some kind of restaurant area and the hint of a dance floor. The Central Park features, I think it's probably a Central Park where they film that maybe. The hotel suite where the professor watches Ursula undress Ursula Andress undress through the window, um, then sneaks into a room. It's meant to be some kind of five-star thing. I'm not sure what that really is. Um, once he transforms into a white cat, like I said, like you said, he proceeds to climb into a dressing gown. It all got a bit odd there. There's a restaurant in it, which clearly is not a restaurant. It looks exactly like the nightclub setting, only not. So they've just sort of put it in a separate corner. It's really yeah. stupid. And the Vietnam flashback sequence is clearly done in the back lot at Warner. <laughs> yeah. And that tends to sort of really where this all sort of takes place in those locations. Um, you get on a boat at the end. I'm not sure that is a boat, really. I think that was actually, again, <laughs> another. It's exactly the same film that was The Warehouse. They've just filmed it from a slightly different angle and relit it. Mm-hmm. Um, not very imaginative sets. The costumes are stupid. I don't like quite like the way where they're gradually dressing down the female characters all the time in this to the point where they're kind of really not wearing it's not that they're wearing things that aren't suitable in any way what they're wearing is just something that seems totally inappropriate for the position that they're in um so they don't need to be you know wearing a negligee with a bright red cardigan or whatever or blue chinos or she's just for some reason is not dressed like the other policeman and that seems really weird to me that, that and the relationship dynamic they're building with the manimal character of, of Dr. Chase, as it was. Um, it's a really weird... They're obviously putting them in a really weird relationship dynamic that simply seems totally at odds with her role as a police officer, a successful one, up to the point where a partner gets shot, and his ability to just transform into, into shit, which actually really generally serves no purpose because every time he transforms, he gets knocked unconscious with her. <laughs> anyway, I gave it... Because uh, the costumes and sets, separate from the effects, costumes and sets... I'm giving it a bit of a lousy three, I'm afraid, because I Oof. think there's nothing nothing really made me go, ooh. No, no. I mean, you, I mean I've mean, i just only got a few notes on this. You've got to love a man who can change into animals and keep his clothes on at the same time. I mean, <laughs> Even when they rip. <laughs> that is some talent. Even when they rip, yeah, they come back whole. Um, and all those scarves, whether in formal wear or ready for bed, JC is never without a scarf. That's the thing I took from it. I said, I'm going to take that into my life. I'm just going to wear these scarves. I reckon they look make you look really classy. The, the neck scarves, well, they're quite short, aren't they, as well? Yeah. It's just like the one he's got on when he's got his dressing gown on. It's like, why are you wearing a scarf in your house? <laughs> what are you doing? No one wears that. With a monogram. No. Don't forget as well, did you mention his monogrammed um, dressing gowns as well? Oh, I forgot about his bloody monogrammed dressing gown, yeah. <laughs> JC. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. JC. <laughs> Who else yeah, is going to wear them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, well, there's not, I don't know, there's not much else to the outfits, really. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty standard wear for most of the parts. Although I've got special mention must be given to Detective McKenzie's continued use of sweater vests and bright red cardigans while sneaking into dark warehouses. Not the best of ideas. <laughs> no, she's very conspicuous. <laughs> Incredibly. Like uh, also the bit where she's in a, don't, I don't, did we mention the bit where she's in the warehouse? full of arms, grenades, we've seen the manifest, and throws a grenade. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. Which sets off the explosion that, yeah. we mentioned, blows yeah. it all up. Not the smartest thing to do. Because no. I love the and way they, they the jump out of a window, do, don't they? Yeah, jump out of a window to avoid the massive explosion, which clearly is way bigger than that window. <laughs> way bigger. <laughs> yeah. It's like the explosion of the uh, you know the force field generator on the forest moon of Endor. <laughs> it's, it's massive. You know, you're wearing cow's moving exploding in that thing. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's not good, is it? Yeah. No. Um, the sets are also very run-of-the-mill, he said, and even the ship at the end was a bit let down. I, I gave it a four, but I'm happy to drop to a three. Oof, uh, you know, okay. you've, you've convinced me that it's a three. It's starting to stink. Yeah. I mean, to, and to be fair, if I, I, I'll move on to Auto Man. Everything, pretty much, that you said about the general <laughs> style of the sets is the same for Auto Man. Yes, it is. The only difference is it's a slightly different design for the interior of the police station. Um, uh, I'd say that there's also that bit where the car crashes where he tries to take the 90-degree turn. It was so uh, <laughs> it was so Paramount Backlot or whatever it was. That it, was it absolutely <laughs> is. It I've been like, there. It is that. <laughs> there's no backs to those houses. <laughs> no, that's, that's any town USA, any day of the week. <laughs> I'm telling you. Um, the, the police station, for all of that, we hate computers. It's got, there's a huge area. Everyone's crammed into. <laughs> everyone else is crammed into this really small, tight space where they're all trying to do police work. It's got this massive glass room that's taken over with loads of computers with their flashing and blinking lights for some he reason. Has. And and I'm not being funny or anything, but has he got eyesight problems? Because I mean, I, even I don't have my font size that big on my screen. I do have bad eyesight. <laughs> oh, the font size. Yeah. So the sets <laughs> on the computers. The computers are really crap. The, the, I don't know what they are. Uh, Walter's basement. Is like your typical basement, but it's got. It looked. It reminded me of a cut price version of the Street Hawk basement, where the where yeah, totally, Street Hawk is totally and utterly. Yep. Um, but also as well that line in it when the uh, when Auto Man does finally paint, it just said "Stand by for Auto Man," <laughs> just came up on the screen. I had me laughing my head off for ages. <laughs> Did it's it like, make you laugh as well when he like, nearly appeared and? One of the telltale signs of his appearance is that milk gets broken and shattered onto a printer. And so he goes, oh my God. Oh, that- he goes, my printer, my precious printer. He goes, my- what is that thing? It's a typewriter. Oh, right. It's not a typewriter. You- it looks like a printer to me. It's a dot matrix printer. You broke my printer. Why did you put your milk on that? Where did it come from? Nobody's been in that room with milk. It just nobody, appeared. Nobody. I can only um, assume that for when, when Auto Man appears, also a glass of milk appeared. I'm getting a very, you know, a weird vibe about it's a very Doug, Douglas Adams kind of vibe. Some weird stuff's going on. Uh, yeah, the, the restaurant was that typical restaurant that they have in those shows. I'm pretty sure it's it the was. one by the Knight Rider or something like that. It it's is. All, I it think all exactly looks the bloody that. same. Um, so there's not a lot to say that. that I would say, though, that um, the, 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 uh, the Switzerland, when they fly to Switzerland, that looked mighty like Northern California to me. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure that was... Uh, Anywhere near Switzerland. <laughs> it looks a bit like uh, sort of the northern. We need to wear <laughs> mountains. We'll just go up the thing. You're not flying to Switzerland. No. Um, but yeah, and the Alpine, and the, you know, the the sort of Alpine retreat or whatever. It's like, yeah, whatever. It's, just, um, it's clearly a hotel in Los Angeles. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. And when it cuts, it's like, it's dead funny when they're like, oh, we've we've gone to Switzerland. And then Patrick Manny is just suddenly looking out that set window. <laughs> it's like completely yeah. different light and everything. It's like, this isn't the same place. It's not the same place. I get it. It's rubbish. Um, yeah. As for the costumes, well, I mean, they're more boring than uh, animals, really. I mean, I'm not going to talk yeah. about, because I'll talk about Auto Man in probably in the effects and the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the, bit, the visuals bit. So we'll talk about Auto Man, put Auto Man to one side. But the rest of it, there's no, I mean, Desi Arnaz Jr., Walter is the most boring, you know, front man in one of these he programs really that I've seen in some time. It's like they yeah. made the, the the nerd guy out of thinking the front man out of Street Orc. He's suddenly yeah. become the front man. So it's like a weird yeah. sort of crossover. But he's he's very dull. The henchman, uh, what's his face? That one who sort of they trick and becomes terribly scared of them all the time. Oh, They're just yeah. in that standard standard suit they wear. The uh, set the costume designer is the same guy, John Grark, whatever his name is. 
It's the same guy who did it for this as well. So it, it looks exactly the same. The gang members all have that denim and sort yeah. of tight stuff on. It's, yeah, everything you said about Manimal, just repeat for this. But apart from uh, uh, Brooks's, you know, outfits. And so there's nothing really in this that really sort of stuck out to me. It just looks like an 80s TV show, um, very much so. I gave it a, well, I gave it a four, but I think it deserves a three, really, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to add much more to what you said, other than I, it's just, it's basically the same, same, isn't it? It's it's, it's like yeah. they hit the costume department, you know, hit the '80s <laughs> TV show costume department, right? What were my policeman here? Where are that? Yeah, and then in this one, I noticed that the only female character that's got any kind of interest to her in terms of what she wears, because they played, they sort of dressed down his kind of love interest in the sort of the nerdy office girl, apart from one scene later where she appears. Oh yeah, there's the spy in there. I suppose the spy is the standout, I guess. Yeah, but even then, she's sort of just. She's weird. You know, she looks like she's from. I said Ultravox, or she looks like yeah, she's from a, a yeah. new romantic video. It's, she does look exactly like that. And other than that, like you said, there's no, there's nothing. You've no costume here other than Ottoman, which is a completely different conversation. But maybe that's by design. But it does mean that the rest of it just looks very dreary. Eighties TV movie, TV show type. There's nothing really. You know, the businessmen look like businessmen. They all look like the same. They all drive sedan cars. They all drive, drive the same cars in the same way. With the same boring colours in the same squeaky tires. Yeah. Oh, it's the same, same formula. You know, they they've had one costume department and they all went to the back lot of Warner Brothers to shoot at any town USA, and this is what you end up with. It all kind of looks the same. And loads and loads of TV shows are shot there, so loads yeah. of them. Yeah. Yeah. No. I also gave it well, um I, I'd agree with you, I think, with, with the terms of its I don't scoring. think there's any difference between the pair of them really. Unless no, you, I think unless, you have to give them the unless same. you count JC's costumes and Brooks' costume as a step above what we get in. To maybe I don't think I don't uh, maybe there's maybe they thought with a bit of thought but they just tried to make him aristocratic by giving him a the only thing they didn't give him was all them cigarillo things <laughs> which I thought they would have given him because that's but, the know, ultimate isn't it I mean maybe we should give it an extra point for monogrammed pajamas yeah well we, all right we'll tell you what we'll give it a, what was it we'll four it and four. a three was it so we'll yeah, give that, it a four that puts and, them even and that puts them even Stevens at the minute then well you know what who, who would have thought that we could have conversed <laughs> about costumes for that long. <laughs> Um, not me. <laughs> not me. Anyway, let's move on to um, our next particular sort of characteristic. So this is music and sound effects, um, and this is over to you, Agent. Tell us all about the sounds of Manimal, and be, be careful. <laughs> I'm going to talk to you in the sounds of panther (laughs) 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 or maybe hawk Manimal theme tune is by Paul Chihara Um, not Paul Chitara no no Paul (laughs) Chihara it would make more sense I'm going to give you a bit of information on him he got a BA and MA in English Lit from the University of Washington and Cornell University respectively he was the first composer in residence of the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra conducted by Neville Mariner and was most recently part of the music faculty of UCLA where he was the head of the visual media program there you go. His first film score was for Roger Corman's Death Race 2000. Ah, uh, okay. Makes sense. Um, and he did quite, he's done quite a lot. Um, but I've uh, just noted down his notable TV works. I want to say notable. <laughs> See if you've actually heard of any of these. There's The Dark Secret of Harvest Home, Doctor Strange, uh, Brave uh-huh. New World, Noble House, Frederick Forsyth Presents, and, of course, the pilot and theme music to Manimal, among oh. others. Um, oh, he also composed the score for Shogun the Musical, based on James Clavell's novel. God, that's got to be niche, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that is bloody niche, isn't it? Oh, no, there's a ninja. I think I've seen a ninja. <laughs> oh, he's throwing something at my knee. Yeah. 
God damn it was a ninja, a really, really dangerous He'll ninja. He'll never make a shogun out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I will show you, I will shogun. Shuriken stars, <laughs> count them one, two, three. <laughs> Spikes in you and me. <laughs> Kimiko, Kimiko, don't throw the bomb. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully that's good. <laughs> what am I to do? I've got to commit seppuku. <laughs> <laughs> it's well for me. It's Harry Carey. <laughs> anyway, we digress. We do digress. Uh, enough about him. Enough about Paul Chihari, did it? What about the tunes? So the Manimal theme tune gets a lot of airtime in the show. He's quite a lot. He's quite heavily. No, no, no. So it comes on. Um, <laughs> and so the main theme, I thought, is that it's an odd mix that I thought was trying to capture like modern synth sounds of the time with some callbacks to more nature-themed shows. And I thought I, yeah. I heard, I thought I heard echoes of the classic Tarzan theme in there. Yeah, um, I agree with that. You know, dun, 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 and I thought, you know, that make, kind of makes sense. There, um, you know, you're trying to get this modern, you know, lives in this modern world, and it's uh, this ancient power that he's got from Tibet or from wherever, from something. So it's his ancient power, and you're kind of trying to merge these two things in the theme. So I thought that was quite good. Mm. Um, there's some, there's also some sort of tribal drums. I thought um, that sounded like they're in the background. So he's kind of bringing those sort of themes through. And I thought, I thought it was all right. I, mm. I, th- I thought it fit the show quite well. Quite unusual. It's quite an unusual theme tune. Um, and I. And as soon as I heard it, I, I recognised it. I remembered it, which is yeah. always a winner for me. If I go, I haven't seen it because I've not watched this in, I don't think I've watched this since it was on. Um, maybe once as a bit of a laugh, maybe somewhere I was looking for something, but never, I'd never ever purposely watched this since it was actually on. Um, but as soon as I heard it, I recognised that tune. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's quite a good, quite a good theme tune to this. I, I did like it. Um, the music through the show, it's usually held back for the, you know, for the sort of tense scenes yeah. in the in the warehouse and the creeping around and the panther stuff and yeah. it's kind of low-key synth stuff it's your typical stuff but it's i think it works pretty well i don't know if it's all portiara or not but it's it works okay i've no problem problem with it i think there's some more some weird like experimental plinky plonky stuff when manimal is changing form as well there's some weird mm. weird tunes going on which is kind of you know that that sort of different yeah, bit as I well so there's, a, there's a bit of an oddness to the sound in this um so that's you know the music uh, main piece of theme. It's pretty good. I thought I, I did actually like the themes. Best thing about this really, uh, the sound effects. They're your typical. We'll come to a bit in a moment. But the typical sound effects throughout this show are your typical sound effects for what you hear. It's very diegetic. What you see is what you hear. Yeah, there's lots yes. of cat. There's lots of cat growls. Ow! And there's lots of cheap, you know, puma growls <laughs> and things like that. There's lots of hawk screeches. Just because obviously yeah. there has to be. Um, but everything you see, you know, there's, there's nothing out of the ordinary in terms of the sound. Aside from, and this is the thing, what I wanted to sort of thing is the the amount of huffing and puffing that Simon McCorkindale oh, does during the transformation sequences. Heavy breathing on that, <laughs> which is a lot. You know, the back of the back of the taxi. <sighs> don't look round, tight, Don't look down. <laughs> um, whenever you know. When he's changing in Vietnam and the guy's like, well, what are you doing back there? He's like, oh, oh. Yeah, you, you would be slightly concerned. This is no time for that. <laughs> Have you Bull nostrils. Your it's not the time for ball nostrils. Not now. <laughs> it really isn't. Uh, <laughs> so there's a lot of huffing and puffing from Simon McCorkindale, um, which is probably the, the standout sound effects from this, because the rest is just 
straight from the you know straight from the sound mixing board whatever it's just standard yeah, yeah. sound effects there's nothing much there car squeals apart from like i said there's lots of cat cat growling sound cat growls and um, stuff like that so yeah. I gave this a six, maybe a seven, because I do like the theme. So, mm-hmm. but um, I'm happy to sit with a six. But it depends where you sit as well. I, I do like that theme. I think that theme fits quite well with the sort of, like I said, the thematic of the actual show, which is that sort of marrying of modern and modern and old. So, yeah, good good tune. But what about you? Yeah, I'm I'm actually sat pretty much the same. I think um, the thing with Manimal is the sound effects in it do fit the world of Manimal. So and this sort of the tone of the music is less is less important than the sort of animal sounds when they occur. I mean, I got tired of hearing that stupid panther sound because it seems to happen all over the place. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's got one of those little sound box things. He just presses his <laughs> button and it makes a panther sound. It's like rawr, 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 every two minutes. Yeah. But at the same time, the, the, those the sound the theme that's actually pretty good. The only credit sequence is a bit weird. Where he just keeps like looking to the right, animal. Look to the right, animal. Yeah. Um, but at the same time. When the transformation sequences are happening and things like that, there is the kind of ethereal, magical sound, and it does feel transformative. It feels like something weird is happening, and I get yeah. that even with the breathing. Um, and the and the, the, th- the opening theme to Manimal is is pretty good actually. It's quite a good theme for a show of this type. It captures mm. that kind of cross between fantasy and sort of cop show, which is kind of where they were aiming that. Um, yeah, and so it sort of captures it, and I thought it was pretty good. So I'd, I'd actually given it a, a six, but I'd go with um, you know a six or a seven if that's where you're landing that yeah i think i think uh, i don't know we'll go with a six i think a six we'll is, a is six. fine give it a six because there's nothing particularly um, stand out in the actual sound effects apart from the huffing and puffing or the no the, the cat. there isn't um so okay conversely then we'll t- just give you a little bit of the lowdown of of auto man mm-hmm. so auto man's music um the main theme is composed by a chap called billy hinch he was actually a oh. backing musician and keyboard player for the beach boys when they played live and a session musician for many many years had quite a number of hits of his own and hits with them. Um, never actually wanted, he was offered to be in the Beach Boys, but never actually took upon the offer. He just wanted to sort of, he liked playing in the band, as it were. He died in 2021. He was also, and I wonder, because I sat there thinking, how, why would, it sort of seems such a random person to have just do the theme tune for a TV show. Also turns out he was in a band called Dino, Desi and Billy with Desi, Desi Arnaz Jr. Oh, um, okay. When they were quite young. In fact, he was sort of, so he was, and of course, Desi Arnaz Jr. is, is, is Walter in Auto Man. So I think maybe there's a little bit of, I know of a guy who can do a thing and maybe that a little bit of that came along. Anyway, the opening theme mm. itself is a bit of a forgettable synth, synth-like. Yeah. Um, it's a desperate attempt to try and create a memorable cop sort of slash techno synthesized sound. But in actually doing that, they've made it utterly forgettable. I couldn't even hum it now. Um, no. So in a way that they didn't get it wrong with something like... Um, uh, uh, Street Hawk, which has got that uh, Night Rider, which gets that kind of techno synth, yeah. synth kind of variation, or even Airwolf to an extent. They all kind of got it right. Mm-hmm. This one gets it weirdly wrong, and I, and I, I'm not sure exactly why. I think it's got a, it's sort of, its opening theme is a bit twee. I think um, it's a typical kind of cop show sound to the the rest of it, other than this weird synthesizer sound on the top. Um, it's not unpleasant, and it's but it's very of its time, and it repeats its sort of main sort of notion and the main theme over and over and over and over again, to the point when it almost sort of gets in the way of itself. And I think because of that, it feels a little bit dreary. Um, it is kind of linked more closely. That kind of repetition of theme like that is very much linked to a, a shorter intro sequence and also one mainly for kids um, mm. where, you know, that repeating of a certain pattern of thing, but it's not, instead of it being like, auto man, no, that sort of thing. Just yeah. go for that. It just kind of goes for an almost forgettable kind of sound. Um, the music in the show, well, it moves between mission impossible style, military drums and horns. So you get that kind of, 
Yes, very much so. Yeah, so there's a lot of that in the in the bits where you're at airports or where stuff's happening at the airport, which is a lot in this because a lot of stuff happens at airports in this, <laughs> mainly airports, really. Yeah, um, maybe they should investigate them. I don't know. Maybe they should. <laughs> they keep disappearing at airports from gate six. I've been anyway. staking out bars, <laughs> nightclubs. I just can't piece this together. <laughs> um, so the music in the show is, like I said, it's got those kind of Mission Impossible vibes. It's actually composed in the show by Stu Phillips. Stu Phillips is a Glenn A. Larson stalwart. So think yeah. Battlestar Galactica and a Absolutely. whole bunch of others. So he's done loads of stuff like that. So this is no, this isn't difficult territory for that particular person. But unfortunately, it means that the in gate, the in game, the in show music is actually more like the kind of stuff you'd expect to hear in one of these TV shows. The main theme tends to be what you're supposed to try and carry the show forward with. You know, the big blasting Auto Man thing. It just doesn't really happen. It doesn't feel like it's got that kind of hook. The opening credits are kind of weird because it. Like you said, it, it sort of explains the whole story of Automan's existence with Automan doing the voiceover anyway at the beginning. <laughs> Which is really weird. odd. So you so you don't really you don't, you don't get the hook of the um the music. So the, the hook's important in a show like this. So uh, Airwolf's got that famous instantly, you know what those shows are. This is missing that, so it makes it forgettable. So unfortunately, music in this isn't gonna set anyone on fire. And in fact, they try and repeat that theme a lot. Outside of the music. The sound effects, mostly in this, it's a really annoying pew, pew, pew sound, which will strike you. Whenever Cursor's doing anything, whether he's drawing anything, pew, 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 it's like, or the electric hum of the car, which is maybe like an electric vehicle, maybe ahead of its time, but it's kind of a, it sounds like a Tron light cycle. And clearly they've borrowed loads of the sound effects from Tron for this, especially for Cursor and things like that. Yeah. So pew, 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 electric style sort of pew, pew sounds all over the place. They've given... Um, a little bit of reverb to um, Auto Man's voice for no reason whatsoever. He doesn't need that. He's a big fella. He's got a big booming voice. That fella. He doesn't need. He doesn't need reverb on it. But they've given him that reverb, which makes him sound weirdly tacky. Makes his voice sound tacky and also hard to understand when he's talking to Walter. I imagine Walter by the end of it is going to be deaf because I mean if he must be. You know, he generates his own reverb, so he's obviously got a lot of you know booming voice going on. Um, so it means that he never sounds delicate or sounds nuanced. He just sounds loud and big and bold all the time, which is fine for a superhero character. But superhero characters that do that need to be superheroes all the time to have that voice. Superman is wearing a cape flowing when he goes, "I'm Superman." He doesn't when he's Clark Kent. He doesn't have a big booming voice, and there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, so the dynamics don't work. So the sound effects are, other than that, you know, you've got your, your standard sort of sound effects for this car screechy tires and all the kind of usual things. Um, you know, the, even the aeroplane sounds, as much as futuristic aeroplane, um, you don't really get any weird sound effects. The car driving bits, perhaps an interesting, the way they've done some of the techno bits about the car are quite nice. The way it's filmed is quite nice. The way it zooms about is quite nice. And those some of those fluidity of those visuals are matched by the fluidity of the sounds that go with them. But they're few and far between. Most of this is dialogue. Most of it's deafeningly loud from Automan or, or obnoxious at best. <laughs> and then if it's not that, it's Automan instructing Cursor to do things with a kind of <laughs> loads of annoying sounds. And eventually between that and the forgettable music, not a great picture. I gave it a four. Mm, yeah. What about for you? That's where I sat. Yeah, the theme tune, um, it felt like an early attempt to do a quantum leap. Yes, 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 actually, yeah. Much, but it's that, but it also sounded um, uh, like a knockoff from Cagney and well, I don't know if it's before, but Cagney and Lacey as well. Yeah, it's got that get, vibe, hasn't it? I always get Cagney and Lacey and Quantum Leap mixed up. Yeah, because I, I think they've got, they've got quite similar things. It's very, I thought it's very light and frothy, like a souffle. 
<laughs> and it don't it yeah. don't go it don't go techy enough um, no, for no, my liking, especially considering no. we've already had Knight Rider by this point. So we've already had Knight yes. Rider. The ding, and you know, this is that was a year or two before. Ding, did, 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 like you said, if you don't do that, then you know I want something. You know, even even weird Tron like would have been better. Yeah, well, th- just think of the because you no, know, they're pitching this as a technological AI type man of technology yeah. Tron. You would think you would look, take a scanty look at what the techno music of Kraftwerk and people were doing with that technology to make something out of that, yeah. as opposed to this, which is maybe this was their attempt, but it just doesn't work. Doesn't work. It does have a nice key change though, for some reason. Yeah, yeah. But on the does. whole, it's quite forgettable. Um, yeah, the sound effects. There, I didn't mind. I probably did, I didn't mind them as much as you. I think the bushy sounds. I did like the hum of the auto auto mm. car, and Auto Man himself has a bit of a hum when he's just he's just around, not in yeah, a bad way, actually, but just yeah. you know, a, a thing. So <laughs> it stinks, I, I, yeah. he's just poof. Auto is that you, Auto Man? <laughs> I am perfect. I could never do that. <laughs> <laughs> when did you I'm last wash you, that suit? <laughs> I'm just as you built me. <laughs> <laughs> I am you. I have a bit of you in me. Ew. Yes. Ew. I thought that was weird. <laughs> yeah, we, still bit... we still haven't mentioned the fact that he gets climbed into, but we'll talk about well, that in a bit. Well, yeah, yeah, that's a bit. That's all kinds of odd that is. But it's yeah, a bit limp for this for me, and I gave it a four as well. Um, okay. So there we go. Well, that means that um, Manimal stomped into the lead. It's 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 hard. It's way into the lead. <laughs> it, it is roared into the fr- it roared up front. <laughs> it's roared. It has. It's roared into the lead. Amazing, really. It all could change, though. These things change massively, you know. And by the way, just, well, I'll put this in here now just because, you know, I think it's important. These are just our opinions. You know, these are facts and figures that we've discovered, but there are opinions of what we see and what we've experienced revisiting these pilots. <laughs> don't take everything so seriously. Don't don't feel like you need to write in and correct everything we do or say. You know, I'm happy, open to people giving us some good information, but remember, this is just for funsies. So yeah. I'm just saying that because, you know what, sometimes the people get a bit touchy about these kind of You can't TV be shows. precious about Manimal and Auto Man. People are though. People you are. And we'll maybe we'll talk about that, that later. But, but either way, just just as I say, you know, don't take it too seriously. It's just just a bit of fun. Yeah, um, it's just a bit of fun. So we've got a uh, panther paw in front. It's not what I expected at this point. Let's now <laughs> take a dive into the next category. So now we dive steadily into more visual zone, shall we say? Yes. Um, we're going to look at uh, the um, visuals slash cinematography of the two shows. I'll take a moment now. As to... much as that second part is. <laughs> yeah, well, as much as we can we can lean into that. Um, let's talk a little bit. I'll talk a little bit about the visuals and cinematography, such as it was tele, teletography, would we call that? Tele, I don't know what you call it. The, <laughs> yeah. the visuals and stuff of Manimal. So the director of photography, and there was one, for seven of the eight episodes, don't know who did the eight, um, including the pilot episode, was Chuck Arnold, who has a ton or had a ton of TV credits to his name, including Kung Fu, uh, Hawaii Five-O, Falcon's Crest of later, of course, which, of course, McCorkindale would appear on in later. So mm-hmm. there isn't a great deal written about Chuck Arnold or his style, but there is some clever use of lighting in Manimal. Um, aside from the standard TV movie three-point lighting setup, which is generally turned up a couple of notches on the lead actor for that scene, so they're always looking a bit in the headlights in this. Um, and the interiors of office spaces are generally just illuminated across the whole thing, so offering a very simple tonal palette. When there is action in the docks or in the nightclub and closer up urban areas, the lighting becomes quite spot-focused, which is interesting. Um, it's like an illuminated torch at certain points, like a really bright torch f- almost focusing on certain things. Um, there's a lot of tonal light and dark around the Doctor and his appearances. I think there's no accident that his first transformation is in the back of a taxi in the dark. 
I think this helps with the special effects. And these encounters with the bad guys in the warehouse are generally with lots of shadows and tonally quite dark. Um, The tone is clearly set to both the binary notions of the lead male animal and to mask the transformations, really. So it's hides some of the magic of the the transformations. Because if it was in the broad daylight, I don't think they'd look so good. Um, There's a lot of bright lighting on the female leads in most of this, with making their already bright outfits really shout out of the screen. The retinas, when she's in that red top in that that (laughs) lecture, they burn my retinas out. It's that bright. You can't miss her. No. Um, but then again, spotlights and shadows for the criminals at work as well. Lots of long shadow there. So they're illuminating their close-up illuminations and three-point sort of variations for close-up. Standard TV movie lighting, isn't it? Pretty much all the way. Pretty much, it's not, yeah. you know. Um, some inter- it's not, I was thinking, looking through to see if I could find any jaunty angles and things like that. In the sequences where it's just them talking and stuff, there isn't really any. There's no... no it changes for the special visual and makeup effects. Hmm. So... Uh, we have to mention the special visual makeup effects because that's essentially what this TV show was about. Yes. Um, so the animal transformation sequences. We get an early taste of how these will look fairly early on as our goodly professor turned detective transformed into a panther, uh, of course, and does this several times in the show, but in the in the beginning, if, I think 10 minutes in. Um, but we have to question, you know, how was this miracle achieved on TV budgets? Well, believe it or not, and this is really did surprise me, for most of the transformation sequences in this, they were designed and in some senses directed by Academy Award winning SFX artist Stan Winston. Yeah, I know. I found that incredible as well. It's <laughs> unbelievable. Of course, we know him now for films like The Thing, Although we did, so I'll talk about this part and the way he did the thing because he could have coded that. But the thing, Aliens, Predator, Terminator 1 2, Edward Scissorhands, Jurassic Park, you know, it's a long, impressive, Oscar laden list. Stan Winston's even got his own his own school of effects now. Stan Winston, he sadly passed away now, but he's got his own school, online school of, visual, of special effects and makeup effects. Mm-hmm. The guy pioneered techniques and invented techniques that didn't exist, and he invented some of those. To this day, they're still used. Amazing. Yeah. The two transformations that are particularly hands-on for Winston um, were the panther and the hawk. It predates all CGI by many years, and so we're all latex masks, practical applications, and moldings here. Such is the method that you have um, that you have prosthetic heads, faces, and limbs that pulse and pump as the camera effects often sort of distort around them to add magic to the transformation. So we've got a little bit of visual effect you know, blur the color, pressing the color bleed button or whatever it is. Um, whereas and then, of course, you've got the the, the, the skin pumping um, and stretching and then there's you know, the tiger claws sort of jutting out and the fangs coming out of his head and all the rest of it. It's, in, in, in actuality, there's a lot of ambition and crazy stuff going on here. So in the early 1980s, uh, this is ambitious for TV at best. I mean, we'd not long had the thing in 1982 and Stan Winston did the dog transformation sequence particularly for that at the beginning. So it's uh, other people have had the effects glory for that, but he actually directed that sequence and, and did all the models for it. So, so this kind of visual effect, as it was then, is actually cutting edge, visually rich, but massively expensive to produce. The process saw Winston draw, this is how they did it, by the way, draw um, in pencil around 12 detailed stages of facial transformation from an image of Simon McCorkindale, from McCorkindale to Animal. So he did 12 sketches face on, and then he did 12 sketches in profile. He then um, got a a cast of Simon McCorkindale's head. I imagine that took ages. <laughs> he's got a massive head. Massive head, and he's very animated. Yeah. Um, so they got a cast of his head and then made 12, um, basically made 12 latex, sculpted 12 latex masks in order of the 12 transformation sequence drawings that Stan Winston had made, believe it or not. And he did that for the panther, so man to panther. And he did that from... Um, man to hawk he did both of those um then he would then he then directed the transformation sequences in a series of blue screen film transformations so 
the parts where you see the hand pull pulsing and all that's all in front of a blue screen obviously so they could reuse and reuse it which yeah which (laughs) they did probably too much pretty too much but that was the plan and now he directed he designed all of the transformation sequences but actually directed those two specifically which is why they're so heavily used throughout the Mm -hmm. entire series because later he transforms into a horse you don't see that a lot of the transformations are actually implied I wanted to see that happen. There's, there's, there's a part of me that wants to see Simon McCookendale with a horse's face. It's not the horse's so. face I want to see. <laughs> there's parts of that transformation that I'm not sure the world's ready for. Anyway, so... I, I mean, see that's grow a, horse balls. Because <laughs> he's all around, he's a bear at one point as well in one of them, I think. I think so. so. So anyway, so obviously then the masks would then be, as they're shooting, they transfer... Transfer, you know, transfer each mask into, and then they sort of fade between. You see it sort of in the context of the way it's done, but they fade between the two different masks or the 12 masks over time to transform yeah. him from, from obviously from man to animal. Now, that is such a manual and laborious task to have done. You had four months of production, which is unheard of in TV land to get all those effects right. So those were all put together in a period of four months by Stan Winston and his team on a blue screen so they could be then reused in later episodes by applying different backgrounds and then compositing them in. All good. And it's like I said, a similar process was used for the Hawk, though we don't see that in the pilot episode. It just appears as a Hawk, which I think is a shame. If they had that, why didn't they use it? But then they'd have been playing all of their aces in one episode. And yeah, absolutely. You've got to save something for the uh, yeah, episode um, two. So, um, and then further, um, as I said, further transformations are implied and they often happen off screen later episodes. Um, of course, like I said, it is the horse and there's others. Um, oddly, like I've said before, McCorkendale's clothes, even when ripped off during transformation, always reappear as they were. It's never explained. I don't think we ever want to know the explanation of where they go. Um, but anyway, you can just imagine there's a, there's a sequence somewhere where the cat pulling a suit jacket out of his asshole, and nobody wants to see that. Nobody. Anyway, such visual effects were alarming at the time and literally like nothing else on TV. We'd seen this stuff in the cinemas, but TV, not really. Um Though Winston would essentially create and direct the core transformation sequence, as I said, at the time they were considered very impressive, but they didn't help the show. Later episodes would see McCorkendale's character transform into a horse, a bear, a snake. That, mm-hmm. that is weird. And, and by the way, when we come to talk about you know other stuff, the, spe- the, this, the uh, action figures for some of this are crazy. Oh, dear. Anyway, anyway um, but either way, uh, so it did. the idea was that he could transform into these animals. And in reality, it, they, what they discovered was transforming a man into an animal is a massively expensive, difficult to produce <laughs> yeah. and hard to film task. Which I think is really because they said any animal, it kind of it kind of really came back to haunt them and bite them. So in terms of its visual complexity, in terms of what you see in the in the cinematography, nothing's really apart from a bit of like some of the lighting is quite interesting, but nothing major. But it does have groundbreaking visual effects of the time. I mean, nowadays it looks stupid, but back then that was cutting edge stuff, and that was it was inventing stuff, especially on TV money to have some of those effects where it's growing hair and the whiskers and stuff like that, and the ears popping out. It's all very. Um, American Wolf in London influenced clearly that idea of live transformation and, and things like there's another werewolf film as well. But at the same time, you've got to give credit where credit's due. This is Stan Winston we're talking about. So um, overall, I, I gave it a sort of very average mark for its cinematography. So it, you know, it gave it a sort of a four or five. So I'll say four because it's not, it's not visually that brilliant. But I've added an extra three on for its visual special wow. effects. So I was giving it a, I think I'd set, I'd settle on a six or a seven, I think, because it's it's a, it's better than average, but it's kind of let down because they obviously they didn't create a lot of the effects, and it is principally about that. So what about you? Uh, I think you like the effects a lot more than I did. Um, I know it's don't get me wrong, I know it's impressive for TV, but I thought that some of the you know I just got fed up of seeing the bubbly hand, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. much, and the and that panther's paw looked rubbish. 
It's just now. <laughs> it did then. It little, it's like it's like oh, put it down. It's like the, it's like the nicest pants. Like oh, it's dead thick. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's all right. It's just they like I said. They certainly. I would say they got their money's worth out of that bubbly hand. Um, so much fair, so much breathing. Um, I, I, the thing what I did like about it is they don't shoot it all at the beginning, so it's like you get the full transformation right towards the end. Yes. Um, you only get the sort of you only get the bubbly hand and the "Don't look at me now, taxi driver" at the beginning. Um, yeah, where his head takes on a very strange shape. A very strange well. shape. <laughs> Parts of that those transformation masks they should never have been. <laughs> I mean, I get it. It's it's you know it is like you said. It's well, I'll talk about it in a bit um, when we talk about the sort of influence reception and things like that. Uh, but I, I gave it a six. I had some of the camera okay. work. Um, there's some interesting moments. Do a bit something different. There are some. Interesting. So some nice shots when we get sort of the viewpoint of the hawk, which sort of yeah, yeah. Actually, I never thought, forgot, completely forgot about that. That is so, quite nice. So we get like when that the hawk is trailing him, and we get those very up high sort of uh, helicopter shots, yeah. which are unusual. Yeah. Um, but they're also to you know serve a purpose. They're, they're not just yes. here's a here's an yes. aerial shot. It's like no, we're getting the viewpoint of the hawk following them, and that kind of works quite well. So I did like some of that. But aside from that, it's fairly rudimentary. Three point. There's some nice dark alleyways and very dark alleyway that the panther goes into, which is completely you can't see anything. You know. He comes back out, but yeah, it's okay. Um, and I think give it credit where credit's due for the time. I think it was quite, it's quite impressive. Just, um, just a bit repetitive. I think um, what it yeah, was. Okay. It's like you know, if we ever do, if we ever did Blue Thunder, the amount of times you're going to see that those switches get switched and the uh, and the yeah, rotor sure blades enough. start turning, you're going to see them a lot. Um, mm. But you know, it is what it is. But yeah, I gave it six as well, so I'm happy with the six. I think six I think it, it is. It. Six. It is. All right. Well, Auto Man. Um, I'm going to start on the visuals, really. So before I get to any kind of the cinematography, um, I mean, if you're talking visual effects and for Auto Man, you, you've got to talk about Auto Man, haven't you? Uh, Auto Man himself. I do. Um, the uh, I haven't noted it down, but the lead, uh, whoever got here for special effects, visual effects was David M. Garber. Um, he's down as the lead. Um, he did things like Creep Show. He worked on Creepshow, uh, Monkey Shines. Um, not too much. He's not really worked on too much. There's other people sort of um, sort of noted for it, but it's kind of what I could find was kind of he was down for the most of it. Um, the Auto Man costume, this is from uh, the wiki, appeared to glow on screen due to its retro reflective sheeting that's designed by 3M. They make sellotape, don't they? Um, but I suppose yeah. they would do. The fabric was made up of tiny reflective balls, and it was able to reflect nearly 100% of the light shone at it. Wow, so did it. Right. That technique, weirdly, had also been um, used several years earlier for the Kryptonian costumes in Superman. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, and they used them for that. The costume also had highly polished plates attached to it to provide the holographic appearance, which is all enhanced in post-production through chroma key effects. So we're getting a lot of chroma key. You get that weird sort of sort of galaxy style movement through through yeah, him. Yeah. It does look odd, but it does it it's okay. Um mm. it, it it gives the show a look of its own. And I think like Manimal, this is the sort of I mean it's the tech version of Manimal, isn't it? Um yes, it's literally sort of the polar opposite. Manimal is the nature thing, Automan is the tech thing, but it's that 
notion that he can change into different things. He can do different stuff. He can move around. He can do, you know, he's, he's, he's something different that we're not kind of used to in our world. Um, I do quite like it. Um, but I think, you know, I couldn't find much out. I mean, there's the, I didn't just didn't get time to watch the documentary that comes with it. So did you watch that by the way? I did. Yes, I did. All right. So if you've got some stuff on there, I just didn't have been so busy with marking. Um, mm. I just didn't have time to watch it. Um, and it gets, like I said, it gets, just gives the show a look of its own. I, you know, the, I quite like the effects on the auto car, uh, the auto chopper, for now, um, and the auto plane. Um, they're good. They were done with strips of reflective tape stuck to them, and the effects crew did the rest. Oh, what works? So, yeah, it's just basically just, you know, glowing glowing neon strips, I guess, whatever, whatever you're doing. But if you like neon stylings, um, and there's some good use of visual humor in this, which I quite like, the 90-degree turns, for example, when he slams into the mm. side and when he stops and flings forward. So there's some nice stuff for that. Cinematography, I thought, was a bit bland. I didn't really find much very interesting to note. Um, the only thing I did note, which I thought was quite interesting, was the long shot of the plane landing um, when it's coming into, uh, when it's flying down. It was uh, the director of photography was a guy called, and I'm going to try and pronounce his name, Frank Bescochia. Bes- That's right. Bescochia. I don't know how you pronounce that. But he's a, you know, he's a TV stalwart. Um, he's worked on loads of stuff. Fall Guy. He works on Galactica 80, BJ and the Bear, Book Rogers, The Master, um equalizer twilight zone you know all mike hammer body loads of stuff so he's a tv veteran this is a guy who knows how to shoot for tv and this is shot for tv it's a bit flat in places it's but whenever auto man you know i think it uses that notion that it needs to be dark for auto man to come out and that gives you know some kind of relevance to the fact that it's usually dark wherever auto man is which allows him to stand out and sort of glow quite a lot and things like that uh, but it's a bit back and forth. There's scenes in the car and things like that. They're just like, you know, shot, reverse shot. There's not much interesting stuff going on. Um, I did, you know, the effects on Cursor are quite good. It is based on, was it, is it Bit? Is it Bit in Tron? Bit, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so Cursor is clearly Bit from Tron. And I like, I do like the way that it draws things into the real world. Um, mm. There's some nice chucks there. And like you said, and even sort of distraws them, like the bit where the plane dissolves at the end, there's that quite nice sequence where it sort of undraws itself. There's a bit where it draws a tank towards the end. Um, there's, the, there's, the, there's the, as you said, the pointless parking sequence, but then it just undraws it. So I, I quite like some of that. There's some, um, I think it's quite effective um you know uh, and there's also a really nice bit as well which i did like it's it's a bit of a blur it's a bit of a bit of a cheat but it just works when he when they're in the car towards the end and cursory draws it into the auto plane and they go flying off yeah yeah so that was quite a nice sequence yeah pretty good i thought this was from a looks point of view from a visuals point of view i gave this a seven i think that's a good i think that's a good call automan's got a strong legacy in its visuals um, it's no accident, really, is it? It's produced by the. It's potentially executive producers. The guy that produced Tron, effectively yeah. created and produced Tron, David Kushner, uh, Donald yeah. Kushner, sorry, and he's best mates with Mr. Lisberger, isn't he? So it's, it's all right. Okay, no, yeah, yeah. So it's and they found they formed a company together. In fact, in fact, they they basically in the documentary they they basically go and see um, Glenn A. Larson pitch the idea of a TV Tron. So like we you know we think we think there's mileage in making a TV show with these Tron kind of visuals in. And Glenn A. Larson was like, yeah, but you, you know, we can't afford a million dollars an episode. Ironically, that's ironic because it did actually cost a million dollars an episode, but they couldn't afford the kind of bank, you know, bank-breaking effects work that you're going to get in Tron in terms of all the supercomputer stuff. So they found you know, the budget way, which is to put sellotape around things. <laughs> We've all, you know, that's the Blue Peter method, and I admire that. I do as well. <laughs> you know, a bit of double-sided sticky tape for speed, and it worked a treat, didn't it? But, you know, put yeah. shine a torch on it, bright light, work, it worked, though. I think the visuals in Ottoman are one of its greatest strengths. I think it it looks 
And it's what you remember it for. You know, if I think of Ottoman, I think of that blue look that he's got. It looks like Tron. I was well into Tron. So it kind of, it, I was sold on the whole Tron thing. Yeah. Um, and so that, you know, it fell into that comfortable territory for me. I mean, the, back when I was watching this, when I was, you know, when I, when I was younger, um, I was completely sold on it. It's the futuristic looking car. The way they did the helicopter and the car is exactly the way they did it in Tron in the sense that they put the tape around it. So it looks the same. There's a part when there's a helicopter flying through the sky in Tron and it looks the same as the helicopter bit that features in the opening credits for Automan. Mm. It's got that nice vibe. And I think that, you know, aside from the sort of silly visuals of when Automan kind of appears, it still sort of works. But like you say, the real clincher for me is that cursor because it even illuminates people when they're looking at it so it illuminates the woman's face and when it goes around and that's quite interesting that it does that there's little touches to it that i think mm. make it it sells it sells the bit um so yeah i think it's a much it's much stronger in its visual effects than because it doesn't have any makeup effects does it whereas manimals obviously principally about its makeup effects but at a time when visual effects are starting to sort of become interesting so tron was kind of a wake-up call to that industry saying actually there's a there's a powerful technology here that can do these visuals and it predates compositing and all of that in a time when the visual effects were on film were all about makeup and monsters yeah. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so you've got interesting that you're seeing TV, it play out in TV where the two strands are starting to diverge at this point where makeup and horror effects go one way and computers and graphics go kind of another way. Um, and I think in this battle between the two, um, from a purely memorable experience, Ottoman hands down is visually really interesting it looks futuristic and techy and those blue lines everything really sell it to me so i gave it an eight and um, the rest oh. of the cinematography in it, it's kind of it's kind of just shot for tv stuff there's nothing's going to make you go wow that, that shot was amazing they don't take any chances with it it's efficient tv show filmmaking so camera positions everyone knows the spots get in there the lights are set up boom change all the lights change it for the next next three scenes yeah, yeah. you know and it's, it's it's a machine churning out they don't have time to sit there and really think about the composition of things, but they had to for when Ottoman's around. And that makes it very interesting because they would have had to think of things they weren't ever thinking of in TV land. So I think it deserves a good, good score for that. So I'd definitely give it an eight. For, well, I okay. gave it an eight anyway. Yeah, I'll, I'll boost it to an eight. Okay. Ottoman. You know that means, don't you? Is it we draw? All tied. Oh, uh, we're all tied for the final the final part yeah. of the uh, the showdown. Well, it's exciting, isn't it, when it all comes to this, when it comes mm-hmm. down to the, the final category. So we're down to the um, reception and uh, influence of these shows. And it's over to you, Adrian, to, to tell us what was the reception and influence of Manimal. I, I, was there much? <laughs> well, it didn't. Well, on TV, long really. <laughs> there was there much? It was scheduled opposite CBS's highly popular primetime soap opera Dallas. Yeah, doomed. <laughs> so, so the ninety-minute pilot aired on September thirtieth, nineteen eighty-three, and then a one-hour series debuted two weeks later. It was placed on hiatus after only four regular episodes had aired. Oh dear. So that ain't good. Production ceased at that time. Um, it came back for a month later aired the three remaining already produced shows before it was done. <laughs> How, I mean, <laughs> this isn't Firefly. It's quite hard for anything that's that short-lived um, to really give a, you know, much of an influence or reception. It doesn't have a good legacy from what I could find. It's not regarded highly. TV Guide rated it the 15th on the 50 worst TV shows of all time list in 2002. 
Yeah, that ain't good. <laughs> it was slick, uh, and there was the other publications as well had similar sort of things saying it was a terrible, terrible show. It was actually slated, though, to come back uh, as a film in 2012, developed by Sony Pictures Animation. Um, but as of today, no further news has been heard on the project. The actual Glenn A. Larson was t- taken on board as a producer. One of the producers that was supposedly linked to that to production was Will Ferrell. <laughs> Dear. So, but nothing's been heard of it. Lost cause. I think it was a bit of a lost cause from the start. It was never going to take off schedule against Dallas. I mean, it's one of those shows, isn't it? Dallas. People don't quite realise the power of Dallas. Um, if no. you didn't experience Dallas back then, you don't under you cannot underestimate the power of Dallas. What it had both in the US and the UK. I mean, the Who shot Jr. stuff, and I'm going off on a tangent, but it was you know it gripped everybody even you didn't like Dallas yeah, it, was, it, was it was a huge. huge huge show anything scheduled against it was just destined to fail so yep. Manimal they clearly didn't have any faith in it they probably thought it's too expensive we've spent all this money but you know it's it's but it, and to be fair it's not very good mm. um it is what it is you know you you could do this a lot more cheaper with a, a, a regular detective yeah there's no real reason that he has to be turning into animals to solve these crimes. No. Yeah, it could be a guy creeping around the warehouse looking at the dodgy manifest. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, you said there was – I've not seen any. I didn't look, but you're saying there's some um, uh, miniature – you know, some toys. I'd, you know, I didn't actually – There is. So you can talk about them. But I would say, though, that so this is some lost thoughts. I'm not giving this much of a score sort of thing. But I think that, um, like Auto Man, I think the relevance of Manimal – um, is in the way that it's another example of special effects, which is what you were saying, working their way down from films, um, in this case, American Werewolf and The Howling, um, were the two big creature feature films that had sort of hit the cinemas, 1980-81, um, and you know, pioneering effects by Rick Baker and people like that, doing this sort of live transformation stuff in camera, on screen. Like you said, The Thing um, as well is another port of call for this. And it was that notion that, you could get those effects now cheap enough for normal syndicated TV shows that it was a step and, and, you know, sort of demonstrating the way that these kind of things work. And I think that's quite interesting because it shows how the business works. And if you look, you know, these kind of tech advances techniques getting picked up, you know, if you think you had Star Wars would lead to Battlestar and things like yeah. that, when CG enters properly enters the picture, like, you know, Auto Man is, you know, Tron and things like that. And that leads to Auto Man and and because we can now do these things and we can do it cheaper, um, you know, when CG enters the picture with things like you know properly enters the picture with things like ter- Terminator Two mm. and the Abyss, um, and we get we start to see we, you know a few years down the line we'll start to see morphing in TV shows like the X Files um, yep. and stuff like that. So it's not in and of itself a thing, but or you know responsible for it. But I think Manimal is quite another kind of one of those lost examples of how. TV appropriates and sort of transforms, you know, cinema style techniques into that cheaper everyday, um, you know, sort of delivery mechanism. That you know how we look at these things, and in that way, it's kind of interesting. I don't think there's a lot more you can say about it, though. It, you know, it didn't really sort of launch a thousand clones. It didn't become. There's no real way to look at it. It is a bog standard. Let's do a different, some kind of different type of, um, you know, a, 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 you know, detective show. It's one of those they were looking for. You could say this is, you know, it's a follow-on. It, it takes its precedent from something like The Incredible Hulk, because essentially The Incredible Hulk is the, is, you know, it, yeah. the man, man yeah, turns yeah. into monster. 
So yeah. there's loads of those kind of things where man goes somewhere in this. Yeah, there's you know, a lot of is, similarities actually. They're transforming into ripping clothes and things. Yeah, like that. it's just what I mean. So that you can take a lot of this from from the Incredible Hulk. So it's not original, but it's one of those where the effects and the things around the show and the production are sort of more evidence of the way that TV takes on board those elements from film and then transforms them into sort of cheaper, more practical, workable versions for you know weekly consumption as we see in films like you know Air, airwolf blue thunder all those kind of things it was all it was yeah, all, yeah. all happening there and that's about the only thing i could really take away from manimal what i looked into it and you know it's an it's an oddity it's an unusual oddity of the time i gave it a four i didn't think you could give it much more than that yeah there's not a lot of reception because it wasn't on very long and in fact the reception was pretty poor for it mm-hmm. and like you said stupidly pitching it against something like Dallas, well, it was doomed, really. I don't think it was ever really going to stand a chance. Um, And as far as its influence goes, there's a few weird quirks about it. So weird quirk is that they did release action figures. This kind of was the thing with that. And the action figures for this are weird. So there's an action action figure of, there's a standard sort of action figure of McCorkendale's character. And then you've got sort of a little model of a hawk that comes with it. Then they released a series of midway through transformation figures. So there's one figure that's of Manimal halfway between man and snake, which is like a muscular snake head creature thing. It's weird. (laughs) One of them's like halfway between panther and human. So it's like a panther with a human fist. They're really strange. That is weird, isn't it? Half man, half animal. Yeah, they're really strange. And there's not many of those produced. I'm not sure if they weren't even produced. They might have been produced in the UK, those as well. I'm not sure if there wasn't a British producer for those. Either way, it doesn't matter. So there's a little bit of legacy there. And there's a strange thing for you. He reappeared. So years later, um, Glenn A. Larson produced a TV series called Nightman. Now, we didn't get this over in the UK, I don't believe. But Nightman was a really strange comic book uh, adaptation. Nightman is a comic where a guy called Johnny Domino who's a saxophonist in San Francisco, gets struck by a lightning bolt in a freak cable car accident. (laughs) And it allows him to telepathically recognize evil, but robs him of the ability to sleep. That's the premise of that. Now, there's an episode of um, Nightman called Manimal. And Simon McCorkendale reappears as Manimal. But in this episode, he can travel through time. So he's developed time travel as well. And he also has a daughter who can also transform into animals and obviously in the context of the show that's exactly what happens and all the rest of it now the strange thing is that i I have a feeling that glenn a larson has this uh knack or had a knack of returning back to the licenses that he felt never got a very good deal and trying to reignite them in other episodes of other things nightman actually ran for quite a long time i think it's between um 1997 and 1999 so two years there is quite a few episodes of nightman i've never seen a single episode in my life um however um the Manimal episode um, sees the main character, like I say, he allies with Professor Jonathan Chase. It's strange that they tried, and I think it was almost an attempt to try and revisit that and bring it back. But anyway, it didn't happen, did it? Obviously, because like you said, unfortunately, you know, the, the mileage in him turning into these animals was always going to be fairly limited. Mm-hmm. So other than the cure, legacy of curiosity, and it always, as is always the case for these shows, if it's weird, and it's cancelled before its time, and it never gets its dues. You know, just add the world, it's going to become a cult of some kind, a cult thing. So there's a cult following for Manimal, as there always is with these things. People often remember it fondly. I have a feeling they've not probably not watched it as often as perhaps they should have. But, but for the, some reason, they do remember it fondly. I, I don't particularly. The only legacy I can see that really does live on is that of Stan Winston. Because as much as he's not his greatest moment in that particular yeah. time, you know, he's, he's finding his feet. But later down the line, the techniques that he's trying out there for that TV, there's the... A lot of the techniques, it's not so much in the methodology of how he's doing it and what you see on the screen. 
It's the fact that he's having to try and figure out how to do that stuff on lower budgets and try to drive effects on lower budgets. And that is what pushes him to become better at certain techniques because he's trying to find different materials and different things that will do equivalences. And that drive to, for economy tended to make his effects look better on lower budgets, which is why, you know, you sort of see later down the line, he obviously gets amazing effects and you see things like Jurassic Park and later down the line. He became a bit of a master at that kind of, those kind of masks and animal animal masks and things like that. So I kind of feel that, you know, this led Sam Winston, you know, in a very early stage of his career, it gave him probably the confidence to say, actually, even though it didn't look great on that particular show, this is something that I can do for a living. Um, and, you know, I can get I can get a lot better at this and get a team behind me. So I think I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that it gave us that because, you know, not on its own, but hmm. it's a birth, birthplace of some ideas around that. But like you said, everything else, it's kind of just forgotten in time. And no one's going to remember McCorkindale, are they, for getting all fat of face and getting pulpy of, of wrist. <laughs> and like you say, fangs growing out of his weird face. And <laughs> and, breath, and breathy of mouth. And just breathy Breathing. of mouth, yeah. So, so I know, like, like <sighs> you, I'd actually given it a five, but I think I, I could settle on a... I'll, 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 four, I'll go with it? five. I think the Stan Winston stuff is something I hadn't considered. So maybe I'll oh. give it a five, yeah. So yeah, okay. and you know, and it did. they did try it again in Nightman. I might try and track that on that episode to see how bad it is, because it, it won't be good. It won't be good at all. Um, no, probably so, not. I suppose that leads me then neatly, really, onto um, the reception and influence of Auto Man. Man. So Auto Man was cancelled after 12 episodes aired, as you said at the start. 13 were made, but never shown. You can see them on the DVD. It was incredibly expensive to make at the time. It was a million dollars an episode, which is unheard of at the time. In today's money, that's about three million an episode. That's that's Mm. Game of Thrones money. So it kind of (laughs) gives you an idea of how crazy expensive it was back then for this to be an average to low success rate. That's a lot of um, money. Plus, the extensive special effects that were required for this were burdensome and expensive too. It was a hard show to produce because of its visual effects. It was always going to be. It was always going to be a gamble. Unless you can find a way of making those effects cheap or repetitive, it's not going to last long because it's simply not going to have the money. Mm-hmm. And they never really but were able to push the money into the show to make it viable, which is strange. But in the end, that was its blessing. Its effects were its blessing and its curse. It was, it was doomed to be... If it wasn't going to succeed quickly, it was never going to succeed, and they weren't going to take the chance on producing another twelve episodes on something that might or might not work. It's got to be a instant hit, or you're done. And so it was. That's why it was cancelled. It was just a. It was a bit of a ratings flop. In today's money, um, it actually it, equivalent ratings now would have seen it, you know, do quite well in terms of its share. It was about thirteen percent share, I think, at the time. But they pitched it on a Monday evening in the US. It's just it's a bit of it was a bit of a TV dead spot. It was opposite. Shows like Scarecrow and Mrs. King, which was massively popular in the US. So, mm, you know, yeah. and here, we, we got it on Saturday prime time, you know, Saturday kids prime time show. It's, and in the, of course, in the UK, it was massively popular. These kind of shows always were in the UK. Every single one of them, every single Glenn A. Larson show that came to the UK was big and popular because we didn't really have anything that looked like it. So, no, you know, it shouted no, big production to us. Um, like I said before, it was shown after Grandstand and the News at 5.20pm on BBC on Saturday Saturday evening, Saturday tea time. What a slot to put in, Saturday tea time, prime time really for, for, for this. Um, so in terms of its reception, well, it got cancelled. So its reception wasn't as great as they'd hoped, was it? I think no. partly because I think you hit the nail on the head. The characters that, I mean, don't get me wrong, the guy that plays Automans is quite, he's a nice guy. And, and in, the, in these interviews that I've seen him in the documentary, he comes over as a really genuinely kind guy. And and I think he gave everything to the Ultraman role. He really bought into it. They all did. Unfortunately, they're just, none of the characters in it are really that likable. Ultraman's a bit wishy-washy. He doesn't really do much initially and, and he's not really superpowered or anything. He just kind of makes cars appear and disappear and things. Walter's character's really dull. The, the, all the female leads in it are kind of neither here nor there. The captain's over the top crazy. It's just 
it's really about nothing. There's nothing there. It was all going to be about those visuals. Yeah. And unfortunately, that is not enough to carry the TV show forward. As they discovered in the end, the TV has Automan dancing like John Travolta. Bear in mind that the background for the guy that played Automan there, what's his name? Wagner, isn't it? Chuck Wagner. Um, yeah. Chuck Wagner. He was actually a classically trained dancer and singer, and he had a you know big long theatre and sort of career behind him. He was quite a well known sort of you know a, a music hall type big you know big big present big uh, personality type in that. So they, they leverage a lot of that in later episodes where they see him. You see him dancing and singing. At one point, he's even playing an electric guitar in a backing band with, um, uh, I think it's Laura Branigan, who appears in one episode. And, and on that note, by the way, the queue of people lining up to be, or who were either in Auto Man or queuing up to be in it, the stars are ridiculous. There's loads of them. Every popular star you can name, everybody you can name, Richard Lynch, uh, Patrick McNee, um, you, everybody you can name and every every sort of TV stalwart that you can think of was either in that show or going to be. Even Robert Englund's in one of them. There's loads of loads of them, loads of actors and actresses <laughs> all queuing up to be in that show. So I think I think people were interested about the visuals. They wanted to be part of something. I think it was perceived as going to be something quite big. I think there was genuine like shock when it didn't quite land. But I think that also plays into the fact that Tron didn't quite land in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think you know, visuals aside, I think it was just a little bit of a, you know, it, it was of its time and they didn't quite know what to do with it, I think. Um, so in terms of its reception, well, like I said, in the in the UK, it got reasonable reception. It was quite popular. It came out first, believe it or not, in the UK on DVD. It was, that was the first place they released it, I think, because we genuinely liked it more. Um, and then it was like only only late, I think, in 20 double figures, 20 to 10, 11, it came out on DVD in the US. So it's been a long mm-hmm. while for there. And then obviously it's been on Bravo and things like that since. Um, so, and of course, it, given that it was TV Tron, um, the legacy, the effects team, I thought would fa- obviously the effects team involved, or at least the executive producers behind those effects would far outlive the show. Donald Kushner is still active in the VFX industry. He was the executive producer on 2010's Tron Legacy, amongst other things. So uh-huh. he's still still in there. Still, you know, he's still going. There's still, I bet he's there. One of those, like the Spirograph guy in The Simpsons. So, <laughs> <laughs> they're still managing Tron. <laughs> um, and of course, the show, in terms of its influence, well. It became a bit of a cult classic again, like these shows do. If it's cancelled, if it's broken, if it doesn't quite work, if it's there's always room for cult in there, isn't there? Um, I think more because of the TV Tron aspect than any other reason than its characters and its plots, because the plot were rubbish and really stupid, which again didn't help. The story's got genuinely weird. Like I said, he starts dancing at one point, finds himself in a band, just weird stuff. Very short run, but it did leave a good impression visually, which was I think the plan, but just people just didn't get get into it. On the DVD, there is a documentary called Calling Automan. And I think if anything you get from that, it shows you how much dedication that cast had to that show. They were really into it. Um, there's a lot of love for it, including Glenn A. Larson, who genuinely, he was a bit more skeptical at the start. He was like, look, I can't make TV charm. It's just, you know, I don't have that kind of money. They convinced him that they could find a way of doing it. And he was like, right, okay, if you, if you say so. But I think he knew in his heart there was something never going to quite work. Maybe it's something to do with Desi Arnaz Jr. as well. He's actually, like I said, he's the son of Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball. Now, they cre- created Desilu Productions. That's the production company behind Mission Impossible, I Love Lucy, Star I Trek. Love, yeah, I Love Lucy is where I remember it from, yeah. So, you know, they're fa- famous big producers of those kind of shows. So it's sort of almost fitting. You could almost see the reason why he was placed in there because he was lending it a bit of production quality, yeah, yeah. I guess. You know, he's the son of a very famous production duo. But there were action figures for Auto Man. They weren't great and there wasn't many of them. And again, I'm not sure if they were the ones that produced in Britain or not. I can't remember. There was, I saw a documentary about them and they, they never got a great deal. I think it did. It was either Manimal or, or Auto Man. I think Manimal actually got an annual in the UK. But I think I don't know if Auto Man did. But either way, um, I suppose the only legacy and influence you can really say about this is it still has... Everyone remembers Auto Man for its super right hand turning car. Um, 
and for the fact that, um, and not so many people remember it because you know that Walter could crawl inside Automan and be indestructible, <laughs> but that did happen. That did we've happen. Tried to, we tried to sort of stay away from the fact that he, you know, he crawled inside him. His ass gets stuck in a door at one point. It's just weird. Um, but um, the, I suppose if there's any kind of reception, really long longevity to it, it's around those visuals and the fact that they were Tron-like, and Tron made its own comeback with Tron Legacy. So the mm. the idea of that Tron world and the visuals and it being up, you know, once we got to the point when we could make them really crazily good, you know, and get Daft Punk to do a soundtrack, which is way better than the soundtrack, which would have been amazing for something like that. I could see there being an auto man now with all the discussion of AI and things like that. And I can't imagine what, how that would be probably still be as boring if he's going to end up with a band with Laura Branigan, but either way, <laughs> um, in terms of its influence and reception, I don't know. I think it's better. I think it's better received still than Manimal. I think people still remember Automan as the show that perhaps got cancelled before it was before it was really given its chance. Um, because I don't know, maybe it deserved a bit more legs than it did. Certainly, that's that was the feeling of the people in it. So I, I think I gave it. Uh, where's my score for this? I gave it a seven Oof. for its for its um, for its lasting influence because those visuals, whichever way you look at it, if you mention Automan, I can I can see the Automan. I can see what it looked like, the blue car and the blue outlines. I can still yeah. see it now. I mean, I get it. I get. I gave it a five. Um, okay. I thought it was, um, and yeah, it's pretty. I've written it's around about the same stuff. The neon tech look, clearly inspired by Tron, and the legacy. The, the legacy I've taken from this is that it was um, an early example of jumping on the power of computers and what yes. they could do that was prevalent at the time. Yeah, um, tech talk kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, tech talk. But I, I thought when I sat down and thought about it, when I thought it's actually what it's doing. It's trying, whereas Manimal, you could sort of say, is Incredible Hulk, this is Knight Rider just giving the kit character a human body. Yeah, yeah, very much so, yeah. And so I yes. just think it's just an evolution of that. It's like, well, we've got a talking car. We're a bit limited in what we can do with a talking car. You know, although Knight Rider was become insanely popular by this point, they were doing that stuff. So, well, we could probably do, imagine what we could do if we had the, if we had the power of kit, do all these cool things, and he had a really fast car and stuff, but he was a bloke. He was a man and he could do all this other stuff. So it's like, yeah, I find this is another, it's another oddity. It's another weird oddity that just misses the mark a bit because I think it, aside from those visuals, um, there's not a lot else really to this. And the visuals are very, yeah. like I said, of that time. I think the computer thing's quite interesting, but I think there's other things that do it more, a bit, that do it better. Um, and, you know, similar to Manimal, it's trying a different spin on the buddy cop thing. I mean, Manimal, I didn't even think about it sort of thing, but also you could argue that it's another in those will they, won't they? It's that, you know, man and woman, double double buddy cop type thing. Yeah, there was a lot of that at the time. So you, you just mentioned Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Um, so yeah. Manimal's sort of treading those grounds as well. Was this giving it more like a... There's none of that here. It's just, it's just, it's the so street hall characters again. The Snake Man and Ardon. <laughs> snake Man and Ardon, yeah, exactly. Um, um, yeah, so, I mean, the the, the big pitch for for, for Ottoman was that rev- it's Tron inverted, isn't it? It's so Tron instead inverted. of it being a. But I think it, that what you convinced me of was the, I think with Manimal, it's the Stan Winston angle, which I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that does have that. So. That's why I think Automan is pretty much the, the same for me. It, it's the computer side of things that's most important, most sort of the visuals, fair enough. Everyone remembers the visuals, but I think it's that idea that computers can do something else in AI and especially now sort of thing, like you said, um, mm. is the age which we've suddenly come into. It's like, you know, I've created this AI person. It's like, well, yeah, okay. And Everyone you get programs. Was that, what was that? Was that Joss Whedon on Doll Doll World or something? I can't remember what it yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, th- so the, these kind of ideas, this idea of creating it, and there was that uh, the film uh, Ex Machina, um, yeah. 
so the this this idea of creating and I you know weird science is another one, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So utilizing computers to create humans or robots, and and then I suppose you could go back to, I mean, demon seed. Um, yeah, I'm not sure know. anyone ever wants to go back there, but yeah, <laughs> no one does. But even Hal from two thousand, Julie Christie definitely done. Yeah, but even Hal from two thousand and one and those kind of ideas that you yeah, can have a yeah. human, you know, it's it's so it's riffing on those sort of things, which is a prevalent yeah. theme that you know with computers and can they create you know iRobot and all those sort of sort of things so there is all that to it but it's just a sort of offshoot in there so i don't know i don't know um what i would give it i mean i could split the difference give it six if you want if we do that then it's a draw all the way for both if we know if we give it that then it wins well then let's give it a six i think it's an auto man auto man takes the biscuit and that ruins my what i was i thought we were going for a draw there because i put some pictures at the back end of the uh (laughs) at the end and i thought we could if we had to if we have choose, to get the guns out, yeah. Then we could choose who's the most, who's the coolest front man. If you look at those pictures I've found. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've seen, I keep coming across that one with Auto Man. He looks like Lawnmower Man in that. He does look like Lawnmower Man. And Simon McCorkendale looks <laughs> stupid and playful. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like it has the Tinder picture. Yeah, but if you scroll down as well, we could judge the. <laughs> We could judge the yeah. Uh, can, the can we go figures. by the the action figures aren't I'm winning any awards? Like, Who's that guy <laughs> in the background of the Autumn? That ain't Walter. That's just some. Who is that? I don't know. But Auto Man's hair is very well brushed. And, and that manimal one. Who drew that lion? It's like a monkey lion. <laughs> That's part change, isn't it? <laughs> and he's got he's got human arms. It's really, why have they all got human arms? The snake, know. human arms. I don't know. I think I might actually merge these two images for our uh, show images one. <laughs> I well, think maybe we not. have to. So I think I mean I, it's it's a tough call, isn't it? I think if I'm if I, if it's going to be anything, I'm going to I'm going to lean towards Automan just because I think if I'm going to go for which kind of visual effects I like more, I like I like the visuals in it more. Just and that's just a personal preference, and that's really I'm going because you can't go by story or characters because they're all crap. <laughs> and if you go by production, they were both plagued with problems. They both got cancelled early. They were yeah. both pitched opposite shows that were hopelessly better than them in in terms of reception. Yeah. And they both had really strange plots that didn't make a great deal of sense anyway. Yeah. And they certainly couldn't carry them off in a, in a series of episodes. This is Glenny Lassen's sort of MO, isn't it? Right the way through again, yeah. you know, so. And like, and, like, and like we said, sort of thing, they're almost sort of polar opposites of like how, where they're taking their powers from, um, yes. you know, na- nature versus tech. Um, and that, so that's kind of a, the nice polar opposites in that sort of thing. It's like, you know, ancient Tibetan, whatever yeah. it is for thinking and then for this and then cutting edge, AI hologrammatic technology, which he makes in his basement <laughs> on a chip PC. <laughs> I think I'm trying to think, you know, of what modern things could there even be an influence of any of these? But it's just both of them have their because of those people involved. Because you've got the legacy of Tron people involved in uh, certainly in one aspect, and you've got Stan Winston and Co involved in the other one. They've both got you know, tremendous a tremendous footprint for such shows that are kind of crap Yeah. in terms of the, the, the legacy footprint, as much as it's not in terms of the, the people that admire the shows and the people that want to watch them and to buy the DVDs, the legacy footprint for the industry that they're in is massive because mm. for whatever reason, those two shows, you know, they stick out like a sore thumb in the, in the, in the blatant 
crazy world of TV trying stuff out. You know, would we have got the modern Game of Thrones is where they were willing to throw millions of pounds in an episode with those kind of visual effects and things? If it wasn't for the experiments they did in these early days with things like Auto Man and Manimal, maybe they they both lean on those kind of you know mm. you know it's the I think ambition is an important thing to have in a TV TV production. Yeah, and I think if any legacy of these comes out, is that they the ambitions were realised, albeit not necessarily in the way that they could carry on with the TV show being made. But their blind ambition is still, I think, relevant. But I still give it, in terms of its blind ambition, I think I'd give it only because if it comes down to it, the characters are a little bit more likeable in Auto Man. Auto Man and his banter is a little bit more fun than bloody pig nose, bloody breather, giving it all some heavy breathing (laughs) in the back of a taxi. (laughs) And don't forget, as we said, they've got the same taxi driver. I'm pretty sure that's purposeful. (laughs) So they do exist in the same universe. So we could have had... I think they uh, could. Auto Manimal. Oh my God, can you imagine that? <laughs> Auto Manimal, it writes itself. <laughs> oh my gosh, Cursor, make me into a toad. <laughs> Cursor, make me into a toad. So um, I suppose after our, you know, our hearty debates, we've gone backwards and forwards. We've, we've, you know, we've avoided talking about how, you know, Walter climbs inside of his, his alter ego, literally, because <laughs> can't, I can't think about that because it's horrific. <laughs> um, we've avoided some of the, you know, some of the obvious puns, lots of double, weird double entendres and innuendos and mm. l- lack of thought and everything else. But in the end, the scores are the scores. So, Adrian, as the chief scorekeeper, adder upper and person that adds the things together to make the thing, what are the scores on the uh, doors? Manimal uh, ends up with 24. An auto man ends up with twenty five. Ooh, so a narrow, close. narrow victories Absol- there for us. Hollow victory, one might say. Yeah, holographic but, victory, but but still a victory. We have to the victory a nonetheless. That's it. So we do declare a winner, and of course, so in the end game, the battle of the pilots, episode four, auto man versus manimal. I'm afraid his every breathing didn't save him, did it? It did not. Nope. No, he's, he could uh, turn into a panther. He could turn into a snake. <laughs> It could turn into a cat. It's not going to help. It's going to be one less. Alterman was just one louder in the end, and it, it won. Was. So, Alterman, I salute you for the winner that you are. But let's just not let's not go too far. You're only one better, and that ain't great. No. And to be fair, I could see JC in the leather underpants banging a spoon in Zardoz, <laughs> and the all-knowing, powerful Wizard of Oz is is ironically the computers, so they don't know everything these days. So That's it does it. it does it does work. So there we go. That's it. We had a winner. Automan, okay, congratulations to Automan. Commiserations to Manimal. He'll cry himself to sleep now in his, in his dog bed or whatever he sleeps in. <laughs> there is, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Just as some weird sort of other thing as well, there was an Automan Company 64 game in to tie it into our sort of regular C64 Actually, yes, podcast. yes, there was, wasn't there? Yes, I meant to ask you about that. Did you play it or anything? I did not play it, no. I had a look at it on Lemon 64 and I went, I'm not playing that egg. <laughs> it, 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 it did look good. Dreadful. Uh, if any of you played that, then let us know. We may, you know, we didn't. We're not playing that one, so you don't have to. Um, we watched <laughs> these, so you don't have to. There you go. That was enough. <laughs> True. Yeah. So, but yeah, so that's quite interesting. There's a, there was a video. I don't know if there was ever a video game of Manimal, was there? Could you imagine that? I, I, I hope bit, not. <laughs> could you imagine the eight bit samples of his breathing? God. <laughs> do you know, <laughs> I, can ima- I can imagine that they'd do that. If they did it in like Scarabaeus, it might. Yeah, 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 I suppose. Yeah, but can you? They would. They do them horrible digitized (laughs) transitions. So it it would just be a horrible sort of eight bit transition (laughs) sprite thing. It wouldn't be good. It wouldn't wouldn't be be good. good. 
Uh, no. no, so yeah, so gladly there wasn't one of them, but there you go. Yeah, I don't know. Should we? Um, if you want it. to, yeah. yeah, that's it. There you go, Automan. Well done, Automan. Um, if you're listening to this on the fly and you don't know what we normally do, this is our sort of spin off podcast. We normally go and play Commodore 64 games. The podcast between podcasts. This is, yeah, this is our this is our little sort of uh, hors d'oeuvre. How do you pronounce that? <laughs> hors d'oeuvre. Hors d'oeuvre, that's it. Hors d'oeuvre. <laughs> <laughs> This is our hors d'oeuvre. Anyway, yeah. So between our normal podcast, which is Zap to the Past, where we, look, you know, we're going through all all, all the games for the Commodore sixty four. Um, yeah. So if you, you know, you, you like what we do here, you might like that as well, because obviously, you, you know, Auto Man had a C sixty four game. It wouldn't. If you want to join in on that, you want to support us, you could do that. Or even if you just listen to this because you listen to Zap to the Past, um, and you want to support us, you could do that on our Patreon. That's uh, patreon.com forward slash Zap to the Past. Get the episodes early, get extra stuff ask us questions join in on our end of year awards and all that kind of stuff loads of stuff going on um and things like that or you could if you just fancy sending us a coffee you could do that at ko-fi.com forward slash that to the past i think as well so you could do that as well we are done here i think is that we done that's it yes we're, we're done. done we have um, a winner we have a loser we're done we're done we're going to take a break for a week after this we we've done a couple of, we're sort of mid-seasons so we're mid-season between we 1988 and 1989. Last week, you'd have listened to us do our Ask the Podcast, where our people ask that. This is our little sort of thing we do on the side. It's a little bit on the side. It's a bit on the bit side. On the side. Bit on the side. Break. Um, and so to rest our brains before we start with all the Commodore 64 games for 1989, we're taking a week off. So we, you won't hear us next week. Um no. Uh, which is, you know, good for everyone, I think. It's nice to get a bit of a breather and recharge the battery, so to speak. So we'll see you. Um, yeah, so there you go. So we're taking a week off. Um, you got anything you want to yeah. add, finally? No, I think, you know what, as we always say with these things, don't just take our word for it. You can go and find easily find all of these shows on YouTube and all the various different medias yeah. out there. You can always go and buy the DVD off Amazon or something like that if you're really into it. I would recommend you view it before you buy it in terms of Auto Man and Manimal. But um, they are out there for you to go and try, experience, do do so. If you're interested in those kind of things and some of the histrionics we've mentioned, if we've you know tickled your palate in whatever way that might be tickled, if you find yourself heavy breathing in the back of a taxi and your arms start pulping or pulsating, maybe it's time for you to get a bit more um, aversed in the condition of animal changeling, which you clearly have become for some reason. <laughs> Yeah, so well done you. Well done you. <laughs> well done you. And until then, I think it's time for us to draw all this to a close. Um, I don't know about you, but I can't I can't handle much more of that picture of uh, McCorkendale. <laughs> it's, it's too powerful. Arr, so on, arr. <laughs> on that bombshell, um, I'm going to disappear into my AI. I'm just going to climb inside him. Here we go. <laughs> it's awkward for us all. Um, it's very awkward. <laughs> so on that bombshell, I have been Graham Raddings. And I have been Adrian Mills. And you have been listening to uh, Battle of the Pilots, the nice offshoot from Zap to the Past. And we hope to hear from you again, probably in another gap. <laughs> Indeed. See you later. Thank you kindly for listening to the Battle of the Pilots podcast brought to you by the team behind Zap to the Past. We sincerely hope you enjoyed this feisty look and comedic dive, indeed an out-and-out dust-up, between two classic pilot episodes that have graced our TV screens from over the last 50 years. We will, of course, return with another exciting and no doubt challenging episode. Until then, you can download this podcast and others from the zaptothepast.com website, as well as listen on all good podcasting apps such as Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, Audible, Player FM, and, well, you know, those kind of things. The Battle of the Pilots podcast is written and produced by 
by Adrian Mills and Graham Raddings and recorded at Flaky Bits 2.0 Studio. And please do remember, all opinions expressed throughout the podcast are those of the writers. Now, go and watch something new on TV. You never know. It could be the start of something brilliant. 